Room 400, broadcast live on SFGov TV and by phone. We welcome the public's participation during public comment periods. Public comment will be taken both in person and remotely by call-in. For each action or discussion item, the board will take comment first by those attending the meeting in person and then from those calling in remotely. The phone number to use today is 415-655-0001, access code 2484-339-0312. When prompted, dial star three to enter the speaker line. Speakers will have two minutes to provide comment unless otherwise noted by the chair. We ask that you please speak clearly, ensure you're in a quiet location, and turn off any TVs or computers around you. We thank you for joining us. Places you on item number two, roll call. Secretary Silva, can you please call the roll? Director Kahina. Present. Kahina present. Director Heminger. Here. Heminger present. Director Hinzi. Here. Hinzi <laughs> present. Director Yakutiel. Here. Yakutiel present. Director Eakin. Here. Eakin present. Chair Borden. Present. Borden present. Madam Chair, you have a quorum. For the record, I do note that Directors Kahina and Hinzi are attending this meeting remotely under the authority of the Mayor's emergency orders. Directors are reminded that they must appear on camera throughout the meeting and in order to speak or vote on any items. And because we have directors attending remotely, all votes at this meeting will be taken by roll call. Places you on item number three. The ringing and use of cell phones and similar sound-producing electronic devices are prohibited at this meeting. The chair may order <laughs> the removal from the meeting room of any person responsible for the ringing or use of a cell phone or other similar sound-producing electronic devices. Places you on item number four, approval of minutes for the September 6, 2022 regular meeting. Directors, are there any additions to the meeting minutes from the September 6 meeting? Seeing none on you. Now we'll open up to public comment. Anyone in the public who'd like to comment on our minutes from our meeting from September 6th, this is the time to do so. If you're in the room, you may approach the podium. If you're online, you press star three to be able to be in the queue to speak. Seeing that there's no one in the room approaching the podium, is there anyone online? I do see two in the queue. First caller, please. Can you hear me now? Yes, Mr. Pilpel. <laughs> Hello. Uh, I don't believe I've found any uh, typos or other uh, things. If I do, I will communicate those to uh, Board Secretary uh, Silva. And I think despite uh, long minutes and a bit of a complicated uh, meeting, uh, the minutes uh, capture uh, what occurred uh, fairly and uh, readably. So I appreciate that and thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Speaker, you've been unmuted. Hello? Yes, we can hear you. Are you speaking on the minutes from September 6th? Oh, no, 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 I'm not. Okay, great. So, worth, just, I'm sorry. No problem. Just do that. Press star three when you get to the item number that you'd like to speak with. Thank you for calling. So with that, we will close public comment. And directors, is there a motion? Motion to approve the minutes. A second. Second. Please call the roll. On the motion to approve the minutes, Director Kahina. Aye. Kahina, aye. Director Heminger. Aye. Heminger, aye. Director Hinzi. Aye. Hinzi, aye. Director Yukutiel. Aye. Yukutiel, aye. Director Eakin. Aye. Eakin, aye. Chair Borden. Aye. Borden, aye. The minutes are approved. Places you on item number five, communications. I have none. Great. That places our next item, please. Item number six, introduction of new or unfinished business by board members. Directors, are there any items? Director Yacudio. 
Night Chair Borden, one of the things that I did before I left was I had the honor and pleasure of visit visiting the women and men that run our sign and paint shop. Um, an amazing group of folks, uh, and it was really wonderful to see how the thousands of signs uh, and pieces of paint around our city get uh, made and distributed. One of the things that came up in that tour was the consideration of doing kind of a, a once over uh, repainting of uh, the paint on our streets, specifically in commercial corridors and retail areas. And I wondered if we could bring back at some point in the next month or two an understanding of what that might cost and what might be involved of kind of going back out uh, with a focus on commercial corridors and our retail areas in our city uh, and repainting you know, the sidewalks and the parking lines and kind of all the things that, that keep our, our high foot traffic area, areas looking clean and fresh. And so I wondered if there was any interest on the board for that because I know that it would help some of the small businesses out there trying to open back up. Great, directors, is there some sort of acclamation? Yes, okay, great. So maybe next, just like how much that would cost and if it's doable and what a timeline would look like? We'll have a hearing on that or have that come back to us at least in an informational item of some sort. Thank you. Any Thank other? you, Chair Borden. Great. Director Eakin. Okay. Thank you, Chair Borden. I just have a couple of items um, this afternoon. One is I think that my colleagues know that I, I had the privilege to spend some time in um, some Scandinavian cities this summer, um, all of whom like to brag that they are the most sustainable cities in the world. Um, and many of whom have taken extraordinary steps to advance um, equitable transit and safe streets for Vision Zero and cycling and walking. So I'd like to just um, maybe make a, a request to share some of those findings with my colleagues a little bit later this fall when we can squeeze that onto um, the agenda. I have some photos, I have a slideshow. I'd like to, to offer that to my colleagues and to the public and the staff. Um, and I wonder, this not to put you on the spot, but Director Yukutiel, you also traveled this summer extensively, so did you, Director Hemminger, if my colleagues would like to uh, offer, and Director Tomlin, um, if you'd like to offer any, we could collaborate on some sort of presentation of our international findings. Um, that might be really interesting for the, the public and the board. I think that'd be great. And for those of us who didn't go anywhere this summer, <laughs> make us all very jealous. <laughs> So on that topic, I also just wanted to note um, the BBC did a write-up recently of four health-conscious cities putting pedestrians first and put San Francisco in the company of Paris, Milan, Bogota. Um, in uh, the bold and impressive steps we took specifically during the pandemic uh, to prioritize pedestrian safety. So I just want to draw my colleagues' um, attention to that and, and applaud the staff for that, uh, that leadership being recognized internationally. Um, and then finally, we had a conversation last week on the police, or last meeting on the police department. I'm going to get to sound like a broken record on this topic. Um, I happened to see on Nextdoor recently there was a project slowdown on Fulton Street that I had not been aware of, uh, where the police officers were out in force giving out speeding tickets to ensure safer streets on Fulton Street. We'd love to be kept informed of any such. I don't think uh, my colleagues are aware of this any type of police department initiative like that around slow streets, and I'll just repeat the request to staff to bring the police department in front of us sometime this fall. Thank you, Chair Warden. Thank you. Director Kahina. Hello, colleagues. Um, I just wanted to add um, an appreciation. Um, last week, I was able to participate in the Hispanic um, Latin Heritage Month um, cable car ride organized by La Comunidad, which is um, SFMTA's um, Latinx Affinity Group. And I just wanted to give a shout out to all the staff that worked 
tirelessly and volunteered um, their personal time to decorate the cable car, um, pick out music, and uh, make it a very lively event. So I just wanted to shout out um, Michael Losa, Diana Sambat, Catherine Tapia, George Cusa, um, Juan Solis, Fred Butler, Raul Lupis, uh, Cristina Sorio and Andrea Contreras uh, for all their amazing work to, to make that event happen. Um, it was one of those things that was incredibly, um, I would say, affirming for a lot of the staff that, that work in this field. And so I just wanted to congratulate um, Josephine, Jeff, and everyone who um, created a space for this to happen and uh, congratulate the team for making it happen as well. Thank you, Director Kahina. Director Hinzi. Thank you, colleagues. I did just have a couple of pieces of potential uh, new business for your consideration. One is, I think it's time we, we've touched on our customer information system at a couple of hearings tang um, on tangentially related agenda items, and we've had long conversations about it. Um, but perhaps an actual um, information item on it. I know we've had some <clears throat> recent outages of the prediction system, for example, so looking at that and, and work that's coming down the pipeline on that would be, uh, um, would be potentially of interest. Um, and then also I know we had the safe routes to school item a few hearings ago, but I think with the start of the school year, um, looking at um, schools and transit and how uh, sustainable transit projects around schools are going and how we can promote transit uh, in school in school school communities. Um, and then again, I'll echo the the request to bring the police department in. I was speaking to staff yesterday about it, so I know it's on our radars. Um, that concludes my items. Thank you, Director Hinsey. Any other directors have anything to add? Seeing none, we'll open it out to public comment. This is a chance for members of the public to comment on what uh, board members just said in new and unfinished board business. So nothing else, but just what was just stated from Director Ikudio, Director Eakin, Director Hinsey, and Director Kahina. Is there anyone in the room who'd like to speak to their comments? Seeing now, we'll move to online. Is there anyone online who'd like to speak to the comments under new and unfinished business by board members? I see no hands on. So with that, we'll close public comment and move on to our next item, please. It places you on item number seven, the director's report. Hello, Director Tomlin. Greetings, Chair Board. <laughs> uh, and good afternoon to everyone. Uh, my director's report includes three key topics today. One is Vision Zero update. Second is Central Subway, um, and a third around our Muni Safety Equity Initiative. So let's get started. Um, as you'll recall from our last board meeting, um, we committed last time to doing quarterly deep dives into Vision Zero topics as part of our regular agenda beginning this fall. And Director Eakin, to your point, uh, we are committed to bringing the San Francisco Police Department uh, here in front of us to discuss the current state of traffic enforcement, as well as the alternatives to conventional uh, policing in order to optimize safety. Um, we're still coordinating with uh, the schedules of key people over at um, SFPD, and uh, we will, however, make sure that we get on the agenda this fall. 
Uh, we also uh, want to bring back a topic on how we can move forward uh, with speed safety cameras, which, as you know, have been proven to cut fatalities um, by 50% in cities like New York. Uh, next topic, and we can uh, bring up the slides, please. Um, we're making really good progress on the Evans Avenue quick build. Uh, this is a four to three conversion that will bring significant pedestrian safety improvements to, uh, to Evans Avenue, um, as well as create bike lanes uh, that will, for the first time, close a really critical gap uh, between the Bayview and all neighborhoods to the west. Um, that work is nearly complete, and we'd love for any of you who are interested uh, to come take a tour of that work at any time. The next project is the update on Valencia Street. Um, as you know, just before the pandemic, we were getting ready to move forward with extending the conventional protected bike lanes along Valencia Street to the south. However, during the pandemic, the success of the shared spaces program forced us to completely rethink the design. That previous design that we had was incompatible with shared spaces. Uh, and also needs to accommodate the increase that we have seen in commercial pickup and drop-off and loading along Valencia. So we uh, went back to the drawing board and staff came up with a rather creative design for a median protected bikeway uh, for the blocks from 15th to 24th Street, uh, which is the part of Valencia Street that is um, uh, in the high injury network. So what we're doing now is uh, doing public engagement. Uh, there is a storyboard online. If you Google uh, Valencia Street SFMTA or go to sfmta.com slash Valencia Open House, all one word, um, you can provide feedback uh, on these proposed designs as well as um, get further information about uh, where we're going with the project as well as why we needed to make this change. And in addition, uh, there's a little bit of information about case studies from around the world of places where this experimental approach um, has worked. We are proposing an 18-month pilot in order to be able to learn more. Valencia is by far one of the most important corridors in San Francisco. It's part of the only level north-south route in the center of the city. Um, and we take it very seriously, which is why we want to be able to move forward with something this year that can be completed um, early next year. Um, all of the other options that we looked at required very expensive changes to the traffic signal technology that would take us um, years to be able to implement. So we understand that this uh, proposed design is um, not typical and maybe controversial, but we hope that folks will uh, uh, see the big picture and give it a fair chance. Uh, we'll be uh, collecting feedback um, uh, over the next, uh, I forget when, for the next several weeks at least, um, and we'll bring the uh, whatever resulting pilot uh, comes out of the comments to the board for consideration either in uh, December of this year or in January of next. Next up, we have a very important update that I have been waiting years to be able to deliver. Um, and that is regarding the central subway. Um, as you know, our crews have been testing the central subway rail operations for over a year. Uh, they have been very busy uh, testing every single component, finishing up minor punch list items, um, as well as getting critical certifications from a variety of agencies, including uh, the California Public Utilities Commission, um, as well as um, Cal OSHA for a thousand small details. 
Uh, we have, during this period of time, uh, discovered things unsurprisingly that needed to be corrected, uh, like changes to slope in order to meet the precise requirements of uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, but we are finally ready to announce that we will be opening the subway to public service on November 19. This will be a soft opening uh, because we still need to make sure that all of our staff are fully trained, not only in the daily regular operations of the central subway, but every single problem that might arise or emergency that might arise, we want to make sure that everyone who is part of the transit system uh, of the agency knows how to respond for everything. So for the first months of service, uh, we will be operating a rail shuttle weekends only from 4th and Brannan to Chinatown Station, back and forth. So we'll be keeping the T3rd in the subway from November 19th. Um, and running free service Saturday and Sunday to let people um, get to know the system. This also provides a really important opportunity to fully train our staff because it's one thing to train your staff when the subway is empty. It's a whole other thing to train your staff when uh, we actually have full trains. Um, we are uh, currently planning to open the full service in January of 23 just before the start of Lunar New Year so that we can really help celebrate Lunar New Year in Chinatown. So the seven-day week service um, starting in January will allow us to reroute the T3rd trains into the central subway. So starting in January, you'll be able to take a train from Viz Valley straight up through Bayview and Mission Bay and south of Market. Uh, it will make, instead of turning right onto King Street along the Embarcadero and into the Market Street subway, the T3rd trains will continue straight past Caltrain, will stop at the surface at 4th and Brandon, and then enter the subway through the portal that's under Interstate 80, will stop at a new station at Moscone Center at Folsom Street, continue underneath BART and Muni Metro under Market Street, rise up under Stockton Street for a station at Union Square. At the Union Square station, there's a direct connection straight up the escalator from the station platform, deposits you right at the Powell Street Station mezzanine, where you can transfer to BART or to Muni Metro or go upstairs and take the streetcars or buses from Market Street. Um, and from Union Square Station, the Central Subway trains continue to their current terminus um, at Chinatown Rose Pack Station, which is underneath Stockton Street at Washington. All of these stations um, have the most extraordinary collection of art um, that the agency has ever owned. We are so grateful to the Arts Commission uh, for the very special art um, that is included in each of these stations as a part of our uh, commitment to art. Um, in the meantime, uh, we will be keeping you apprised of all the various pre-launch events that we'll be having from tours to ribbon cuttings. Um, we will continue to keep you up to date on progress on the very last remaining punch list items, which are mostly minor. Uh, if any risks arise, we'll continue to keep you updated about those uh, risks. Uh, and we are very excited uh, because this line fulfills a promise, uh, a pact that was laid out uh, between Mayor Willie Brown and Rose Pack, uh, whereby in exchange for accepting the demolition of the Central Freeway, 
uh, we agreed as a city to prioritize a new line serving Chinatown. Moreover, we laid out this line in order to serve all of the most rapidly growing parts of the city. Um, as San Francisco continues to grow, the T3rd from Viz Valley to Chinatown will be the highest ridership light rail line in the city. And it will make new connections, um, expanding jobs opportunities for people along the way. Um, this line saves at least 15 minutes off of the travel time from Bayview into Chinatown or from Chinatown to the job center at Mission Bay. Um, this new line ensures that Chinatown will remain the cultural and economic heart of Chinese-speaking San Francisco um, and serves a whole array of communities, everyone from uh, folks living in the Filipino Cultural District and South of Market um, to the affordable homes that have been built as part of Mission Bay to Viz Valley and Bayview will all be connected together uh, for the first time, and we're very excited about that. The opening of this line also means that we're not done. Um, once the new line opens, we will move, move forward with some long-planned improvements to the speed and reliability of the surface portion of the T3rd to start removing uh, pointless delay. We've already had some success at that uh, from uh, the Caltrain station south through Mission Bay. We're going to continue that success, that success throughout the line because we know that in order to make the central subway really work to its full potential, that we need to make the T3rd line work as well. Um, so uh, we also, and there's some photos about this as well, uh, we had, um, as all of you know, uh, two weeks ago, we had uh, Speaker Pelosi and Secretary Buttigieg came uh, to visit to ride on the Central Subway, uh, met staff, took pictures with staff, uh, both the, um, the Speaker and the Secretary were very impressed with the design of the stations. And we hope that you will agree with the Secretary's determination after having ridden the line um, that while um, it has been a long time coming, it will be well worth the wait. Meanwhile, we continue to be so grateful to all of the communities along the line who have put up with the construction impacts for so very long. Thank you to all of those community members. Thank you. And then what, a couple more things. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I also want to update you on the uh, Muni Safety Equity Initiative, which is a part of the larger Muni Safe Initiative that our Chief of Security, Kimberly Burris, uh, spoke to you about, I believe it was two meetings ago. Uh, we will be spreading the word that gender-based harassment is unacceptable on Muni, and we'll be encouraging riders, bystanders, and staff to report incidents. Um, so we have developed a new feedback mechanism that allows people to report um, harassment or um, other issues on Muni that might not necessarily warrant calling the police, but that we still need to know about. So we're going to be tracking gender-based harassment throughout the system through these expanded online reporting mechanisms. Um, we're already seeing an increase in reporting, uh, which uh, I guess we have basically uh, over, more than quadrupled the amount of uh, reporting that we're getting just through our very beginning uh, of our marketing program. So in the coming months, uh, we'll be installing car, uh, car cards on, all of our, on many of our Muni vehicles, signs and Muni stops, and in stations uh, with this um, new no harassment symbol. We're also distributing information uh, to community partners such as libraries, the rec centers, the school district, uh, to share in their, uh, their newsletters and post in high visibility areas. And we want you all to know that if you experience or witness gender-based harassment on Muni, 
please report it at sfmta.com slash munifeedback, where there's a form that comes up that's available in multiple languages where you can uh, report complaints or praise or uh, uh, um, incidents of gender-based harassment. You can also use the 311 mobile app or call 311 directly. Um, Non-English speakers can also call 311 for language-assisted reportings. Um, all of these reports are kept confidential and go directly to the SFMTA security um, uh, uh, division. They will use this information in order to investigate what's going on, support survivors as appropriate, cooperate with law enforcement, and identify and track trends in order to help uh, develop uh, improvements to our programs and allocate our limited resources. And finally, uh, I just want to uh, talk to you about uh, some of the work that our crews do. As you all know, um, our city is built on top of sand dunes and sunken ships. And so the soil beneath our streets and beneath our trail, train tracks are constantly shifting. Here's an example of some track maintenance work um, out at 21st and Judah um, that our crews did last week in order to repair a developing sinkhole. Uh, so we are trying always to get ahead of problems before they occur so that we minimize any disruption to our transit system. And here you can see them digging up the street. Um, there's wooden ballast uh, underneath the street because, in fact, using 19th century technology is the best way to deal with uh, the, uh, what's underneath San Francisco streets, which, again, is constantly shifting and needing continual um, adjustment. Uh, and with that, I am... Happy to take any questions you may have. Great. I know that Director Kahina has a question and a Director Hinzi. So we'll go with Director Kahina and then Director Hinzi. Thank you, Chair. Um, so I had a question about the Valencia Bikeway Project. Um, would you mind bringing up that slide again, Jeff? Could you speak up a little bit, Director Kahina? I'm sorry. We can hardly hear you. Sorry. Can you hear me now? Yes. Oh, OK. Perfect. Um, uh, Jeff, can you bring up the slide again for the Valencia Bikeway Project? Yes, the Valencia Project. Yes. And so I had a clarifying question on that particular project. So um, it seems from the design um, that by having the bike lane in the middle um, or in the central lanes, um, we're creating a scenario where we're allowing compliant parklets to still exist. Is that accurate? That's right. This pers this uh, allows us to preserve all of the compliant parklets. So some of them will still need to be shifted slightly where they're too close to an intersection. Um, and it also allows us to significantly expand commercial loading along Valencia to deal with what I'm sure all of you know is a severe double parking problem. Yes. Um, and so um, I know I asked staff for a debrief on this particular project, and um, I'm meeting with staff next week, I believe, um, to go over this and take a deeper dive. Um, but I am hearing from uh, merchants and community members about a lot of confusion around the messaging around this particular project. And so um, I think right now it seems, and I'm not 100% sure, that um, Public Works is currently um, enforcing um, compliance on Perklets. Um, and they're receiving multiple notices about basically um, parklets and this project, and it's creating a lot of um, confusion and anxiety around uh, messaging for this. And so I wonder if we could create some sort of strategy around that um, and figure out a better way to 
um, streamline the communication around um, the project. Um, for instance, I heard a merchant tell me that um, they were asked to take down their parklet by December, for instance, um, and that it was somehow tied to this project, which I, I, I think they're probably separate um, situations. But um, I just wanted to make sure that, that um, I gave you space to, to talk about the messaging around this um, particular project and how we're coordinating with different departments who are working on different projects um, when it comes to parklets as well. Yeah, thank you for that. We'll make sure to pass that information along to the team. And I do just want to repeat um, that not only are Parklet compliance and the Valencia Street Bikeway project completely separate, but we have specifically designed the Valencia Street Bikeway project in order to ensure that all compliant Parklets can remain. Thank you. Thank you, Director Hinzey. Um, Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Jeff. Um, congratulations on um, being able to deliver a central subway soft opening date. That's great, and I think that's a creative idea to do a, a soft, a soft opening just to sort of see how it goes. And I think we, at some point between when it soft opens and, and the actual opening the actual opening date for full service i think we should have uh, potentially an item on central subway and how that's going um my quest my question is on um the muni safe initiative the muni safe initiative um it's great that we're getting uh, an increase in reports even with our our to to date minimal outreach and i trust that all the outreach is going to happen and people will get engaged in it. My question is, is at some point, I'm curious if we're going to be, um, with this initiative, diving into more um, bystander, not, not bystander training, but as opposed to like what bystanders can do to help. I know reporting, reporting is going to be our, probably our big message, but if, um, if you're planning any sort of bystander intervention things as a part of maybe a phase two, I just wanted to give you a chance to. Yes, absolutely. So bystander training is a critical component uh, of dealing with gender-based harassment. Uh, it is something that we just all need to acknowledge is completely unacceptable. Every single one of us, particularly cisgendered men, play a critical role in clarifying to all people that gender-based harassment is unacceptable everywhere and especially on public transit. Um, and so we have already started linking to third-party bystander training resources uh, that we can all use in order to understand uh, what it is that we can best do uh, under the, uh, you know, un under the context at hand. Okay, great. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. Director Heminger. Thank you, Madam Chair. I've got a couple of uh, items. The first one, it'd be helpful, Jeff, if you could put back up the, I believe it was Evans Avenue uh, yes. bike lane. And I believe I raised this issue at our meeting last time about Battery Street. Um, so I guess this is more of a general question. Um, we're calling these uh, things, I'm sure the picture is almost here. Um, there it is. 
We're calling these things protected bike lanes, but what they're protected by are these skinny little pylons. That's right. Um, is that our standard, or do we do something more protective where we can squeeze it in? So I think Howard and Folsom Street are good examples of the strategy that we have been using. So as you know, we have dramatically accelerated our delivery of safe and protected infrastructure, um, as well as uh, pedestrian improvements. Uh, and in order to accelerate, what we've done is uh, shaved over a year off of the design process by experimenting in the street itself with paint and plastic um, and making modifications uh, in order to tailor the design to the real world reality. So our traffic models can tell us one thing, but they don't tell us how people are gonna actually use facilities. So before we do anything in concrete, we're experimenting in cheap materials like paint and plastic. Uh, in the case of Howard and Folsom, we've completed those experiments and we've now been funded to take all of that great work um, and convert it into not only concrete, but to also uh, trees and um, uh, stormwater facilities and so on. So our hope on a street like Evans is that we will learn a lot from this experiment, um, see if we can gain consensus from all of the different players and then move towards a more permanent and more secure design. One of the um, critical issues in a street like Evans is emergency response. And so we redesigned the project in response to concerns from the San Francisco Fire Department about whether it might slow emergency response uh, time by marking the center median as a fire lane. If we can get that center median to actually work as a fire lane, the fire department will be less concerned about more prominent barriers against the bikeway. So right now, you know, if a fire truck needed to use the bikeway, a fire truck could just go over all those plastic poles, but so could an errant motor vehicle. So that's one of the things that the quick build process allows us to strike the right balance in is optimizing a design that is both fully safe for people riding bikes, but also not uh, resulting in significant delay for emergency response. So I, I forget whether it's Howard or Folsom or both, but the treatment I thought was you were using a, lot, uh, a row of parked cars to protect the bikes, right? Well, in some cases, yes. And in other cases, we're using a row of trees to protect the bikes or uh, just a concrete barrier. Okay. So is that the standard that we're shooting for wherever we can do it? So the standard that we're shooting for, for, for streets that have fairly high motor vehicle speed and or volume is some kind of physical separation um, that uh, will prevent an errant motorist um, from driving into the bikeway and killing a cyclist. And do we have any data with these uh, pylons about how safe they are? Uh, we do. So uh, the, um, we collect data on every single one of our quick build projects. Um, the data has been extraordinarily positive. Like we get better performance out of them than you would think given that they're paint and plastic. So we firmly believe in the quick build process because it allows us to get to the ultimate goal of a fully protected facility more quickly than trying to go straight there. So what the quick build process does is allows us to, um, one, refine the design, and two, 
um, build consensus across many parties, everything from emergency services to pedestrian advocates to people who just want to drive from A to B to people who care about making the bikeway network uh, work for people of all ages and abilities and also for uh, people with disabilities, um, along with other considerations that you know of like yeah. uh, that merchants may have. Well, look, I, I, I really uh, applaud that approach. Uh, a buddy of mine went to Cal Poly. He claims their, their motto is learn by doing. Um, and it seems to me that's what we are doing here. Uh, and I would encourage more of it. And to the extent we can be moving toward more protective strategies, I, I think that's obviously uh, what we ought to do. Um, a couple of questions on Central Subway. Uh, the first one, there was a recent uh, equipment fire um, in one of the stations, uh, and it leads me to question, well, first of all, uh, do we think we've got our hands around that particular problem? And secondly, do we have a certificate of occupancy yet from the fire marshal? Yeah, so uh, we, as we reported back, I believe in July, um, we had a fire um, at the Moscone Center station um, in June. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we have gone through a year of testing to make sure that every single critical component actually works. Um, so we have uh, fixed that problem. Uh, and we've been coordinating with uh, not only the fire department, but Mayor's Office of Disability and uh, the Department of Building Inspection to ensure that we have addressed all of the issues to, uh, to their, uh, you know, to all, all their uh, requirements. Um, we don't have the certificate of occupancy in hand yet, but we are confident enough that it will be in hand, that we have uh, been ready to announce an actual date um, for opening service to the public. So you expect it in the next few weeks, or yeah. you've got about two months left before November 19th. I'm That's sure right. you're acutely aware of that. We are acutely aware. Now that you've put your... your no, we've uh, been fortunate that um, all of the city agencies, uh, so we have uh, we have to get certifications from Mayor's Office of Disability, the Fire Department, Department of Building Inspection, Cal OSHA, um, and the California Public Utilities Commission. Um, and, and fortunately, we've been working with all of them for months now so that we understand exactly what all of their concerns are. The, the, the other question I had, Jeff, and again, it comes from a position of liking what you're doing. Uh, the, the notion of having a soft launch, I think, makes sense. Uh, I, I believe it's, that's becoming more the state of the practice um, because it allows you to work some kinks out with some live passengers, but not the whole crush load. Um, one interesting thing to me is you're going to be doing it on the weekends, uh, which is normally the lower volume. Uh, is that still the case now coming out of the pandemic? I mean, it's almost like yep. weekday would be lower volume in, on some lines at least. Yeah, we chose the weekend in part because it, it maximizes the amount of time that our crews have to finish the last remaining minor punch list items on weekdays. It's also an opportunity to invite people for their Christmas shopping um, in Union Square and Chinatown, uh, which is uh, much more weekend-oriented than weekday. Um, and it also gives all, all people of the region uh, who simply want to explore the line the opportunity to explore the line on a, on a day when most people are not uh, otherwise working. Okay. Um, finally, Madam Chair, I, I believe Jeff did mention the Caltrain station in his remarks, so I'll use that to springboard uh, into a report briefly uh, to you and my colleagues 
As you know, I serve as your representative on the Caltrain board, and that means I'm going to be the MC at an event this Saturday where uh, we will be uh, showing everybody the, the new electric train cars. Um, and we've got more than one set now, uh, and in fact, we're going to run into a problem of having more sets than we know where to put them. Um, but uh, the good news is they've begun to arrive, um, and they're, uh, of course, uh, very good looking um, and above average. Um, so I, I believe uh, you all have been uh, invited to this event, and if you have the time, you should join us. Um, but that project, as you know, like uh, the Central Subway, has been through the perils of Pauline. Uh, we are behind schedule, we are over budget, uh, but we have adjusted both, we think, to give us a realistic target of the end of 2024. So there's a little bit longer wait for that one than our subway, um, but I, I think like the subway, it will, be, it will be worth the wait because we'll have an electrified railroad um, that if we do it well, you'll be able to plug your phone into it and charge uh, <laughs> while you're using the train, too. So thank you, Madam Chair. Thank um, you, and I look forward to seeing you on Saturday. <laughs> that's right, yes. So for uh, members of the public, uh, the, uh, the debut of Caltrain's first electric trains will be this Saturday from 2 to 4 um, at the 4th and King Caltrain Station downtown San Francisco. Thank you, and thank you for that report. Director Eakin. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, maybe this is unconventional, but can I ask Director Hemminger uh, for a quick update on Caltrain ridership compared to pre-pandemic, if you have those numbers handy? Oh, I wish that were better news. Um, it's, it's still pretty stubbornly. Uh, right now, I think we're over 30% okay. of pre-pandemic ridership, okay. but both Caltrain and BART are proving really stubborn. Obviously, both are commuter railroads. They've got it in their title. Um, and there's just not much of a commute anymore. Um, Caltrain, in fact, is, is carrying more riders on quite a few of their uh, trains uh, on the weekend than they are during the week. Um, and I, I do think, and look, Jeff's one of the leaders in the field, so I'm sure he's been thinking about this. But I, I do think, and, and Bob Powers, the BART general manager, just mentioned this in an interview a few weeks ago, I think we, we, we have to start pivoting toward uh, a future that is not five days a week um, and figure out how we reallocate our resources so that we're ready in the midweek and we don't give people a lousy experience when they do decide to go in. Um, and that with these commuter railroads especially, we figure out how to repurpose them on the weekends. Now, obviously, they're glued to the ground, so they're not like bus service where you can move it around the map. But I, I still think it's been long enough now that just sort of rubbing our hands together and hoping that it's all going to work out, um, I, I don't think that's the right strategy anymore. So I, I hope that uh, we can have, and it will obviously have to be some kind of regional conversation about how to better deploy the transit assets we have, um, and especially our rail assets. It's not like we can rip up the track and throw it out. Uh, we're stuck with it, we're expanding it, um, and uh, especially with Caltrain, we're making it uh, one of the cleanest things you'll be able to ride in the country. Um, and that's where we need to head with all of our assets. Great. That, that seems like a really great deep dive topic for maybe our, our annual retreat. 
Um, okay, Director Tumlin, you talked about um, the Vision Zero update and you mentioned a phrase alternative to conventional policing as an opportunity. Could you just say a few more words about what that might look like? Um, so there's lots of different things that we can do. So obviously, um, we've spoken a lot here about speed safety cameras, uh, which if implemented with some wisdom and some forethought about equity, um, can allow us to dramatically improve um, traffic safety while advancing our equity goals um, and uh, eliminate a lot of problematic traffic stops. Uh, so that is, you know, arguably one of the most powerful examples. Uh, but there are also ways in which we can learn from other countries around the world about um, having the, um, the, the staffing around the compliance around traffic safety rules be done more by people who are not carrying a gun, right? So the uh, police play an absolutely essential role in cities like San Francisco. But for a lot of issues, they um, should be, you know, the option of last resort, that our, our first approach should always be around uh, supporting the social contract, honoring everyone's dignity, um, and not starting with threat, but with, um, with an invitation. And so that's one of the things that we're trying to figure out is what is the SFMTA's role in supporting um, the compliance effort around safety rules and to do that through civilians rather than through sworn officers. Mm -hmm. And so obviously there is a lot of controversy and sensitivity that we need to uh, have around this, this very challenging topic, but it is a critically important topic to have a robust conversation around. And we're, we're eager to do that, and we're eager to lead on this topic nationally. I, I'm just, I'm so delighted to hear this. It feels like it's learning a little bit from our ambassadors program, looking at alternative methods of enforcement around transit fare enforcement, et cetera. Um, I would just I would love to learn more what, what this, it feels, like, it feels like with speed safety cameras, we're stuck with Sacramento, unless mm -hmm. we've, our city attorneys have found some <laughs> pathway through to allow us to pilot, it feels we're still waiting on authorization, but this is something that we could go ahead and do. That's right, right, and so obviously we're continuing to expand our transit ambassador program. As you know, our transit ambassadors are mostly folks who grew up in yeah. San Francisco neighborhoods, mostly in the Southeast. Uh, they know San Franciscans. We train them in de-escalation techniques and communication techniques. And their job is to help everyone be respectful to everyone else, right? Because that's what we want on Muni. Muni welcomes everyone. It welcomes people who are needing to get to their mental health appointment. It welcomes yep. people who are needing to get their critical medication. Um, and so in order to truly welcome everyone on Muni, we need to make sure that we understand each of our roles in helping to keep Muni chill and respectful of everyone who is there. So maybe we can get into this a little bit more in the Vision Zero update, but I'm, I'm really curious just for today, is there anything that you need from this board in order to start experimenting with this more sort of civilian-based traffic enforcement approach? Is it a pilot? Is it a concept right now? Like, where is it, and do you need well, funding so, for it or authorization? So this board played a critical role in approving our budget that went into effect in July. So as you know, uh, thanks in part to the work, well, thanks to, to all of you, but also particularly to former Director Lai, 
we uh, made some significant changes to the final version of the budget that reallocated a lot of new resources towards safety, security, and compliance. Um, and you also know uh, the work of our chief of security, Kimberly Burris, who comes from uh, a Baltimore PD background, but is deeply rooted in cultural change and in justice, and in particularly in racial and gender justice, and is interested in the social contract rather than in the punishment model. And so we're very grateful to have her and her leadership, as well as the leadership of Josephine Ayankoya, our uh, director of the Office of Racial uh, Equity and Belonging, who are working together first on the, uh, the, the, the um, gender equity safety initiative, and they'll be expanding that work uh, you know, as we build success um, in the program. Okay, great. Um, second is obviously congratulations on a firm date for Central Subway, so let's stick to that. Um, and then just pivoting back off of uh, what you just mentioned around the, the safe muni feedback piece, obviously gender-based harassment is one form of harassment, but maybe just channeling director alive for a minute. It's not the only uh, form of harassment she's mentioned, harassment based on race and ethnic background. So are, are, are members of the public encouraged to submit any kind of feedback uh, through this portal, or will there be a separate phase rolled out later? Absolutely. So uh, about six months ago, uh, we began a, a campaign, particularly around um, stopping anti-Asian hate. Um, that has continued. Um, and this program around uh, gender harassment um, is rooted in both the um, successes of that program as well as the extraordinary success that BART had um, with their gender-based um, harassment uh, um, initiative as well, and it builds upon uh, BART's success. Great, thank um, you. And yes, in the feedback form, on the feedback form, you can provide us with any kind of feedback. And the feedback form is designed, there's a little bit of a choice mechanism uh, that's built into it that makes sure that whatever feedback you provide goes straight to the people who most need it. Um, and I just wanna remind everyone that um, we welcome um, all complaints about the Muni system. That's you know what we learn. That's how we learn about how to allocate our limited um, investments. So please do use the feedback form to complain so that we know uh, the problems that we need to solve. But I want to remind everyone that if Muni staff are going above and beyond the call of duty or providing extraordinary service, um, if you take 10 seconds to provide some feedback about those individuals it makes their entire year. We make sure that that information gets straight to both the individual as well as their manager. That information is used as uh, part of our ability to give bonuses and so on. Um, and it's really one of the ways in which we can support um, the hardest working public servants um, in the city. Um, so, uh, so please do uh, send in your praise as well as your complaints. Thank you. Dr. Tomlin, thank you, Chair Borden. No problem. Dr. Heminger has another question or comment. Eyes for uh, double dipping, but uh, Director Eakin got into one of my favorite subjects. Um, Jeff, I wonder, have we ever had a conversation, uh, and this is apropos the question of non-traditional ways of enforcing our traffic laws, have we ever had a conversation about talking to the parking control officers about taking on that responsibility? I get it that they're parking people, and we'd obviously have to give them something faster than a Cushman, um, but that's a large force of people that work for this department. Um, 
and I wonder if there is some room there. It might require legislation anyway, um, but I just wonder whether that ought to be on the list. Well, that, that is one of the questions. Uh, and again, that raises very complex legal issues um, as well as labor issues that we need to be conscious of, but is a potential option of just figuring out where do we draw that line between the kind of enforcement and compliance work that non-sworn, non-armed people can and should be doing versus the enforcement work that requires a sworn and armed officer. Uh, and. Uh, and by what criteria should we make the determination about where to draw that line? Thank you. I know that Director Hinsey had another comment. I do. My, my apologies, but again, um, Director, you can remind me that you did mention um, alternatives to uh, traditional traffic enforcement in your Reason Zero updates, and I, I did just want to elevate, and I... Um, I stepped away for just a second, so you might have mentioned, but there are some uh, innovative community pilots going on. I, I particularly think of the work done by <clears throat> Tenderloin Community Benefit District and the, the, the Bicycle Coalition um, around community-led alternatives to uh, traffic enforcement. So I just wanted to elevate that and, and that that um, might be a good um, when, when we have these deep dives in Division Zero topics, alternatives may be a good, a good, a good topic to have. Uh, yeah. Yes, absolutely, and we will continue to partner with community-based organizations all over the city on this topic. Uh, that is one of the starting places around um, alternatives to enforcement. Um, those. Uh, a, a starting place, the best starting place for alternatives to enforcement is always community. Uh, because what we're trying to do, our goal is to cultivate a sense of mutual respect and compassion for all San Franciscans. Um, and that's easiest to do in community, uh, to start rebuilding trust, uh, re-knitting the social contract back together um, after this very difficult period uh, in American history. Agreed. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Director Yacudio. Sorry that I missed the party apparent in the conversation. I apologize. Um, and I also apologize if this has already been asked, asked Director Tumlin. Um, clearly, my, my words are not coming out very well today. Uh, are you worried about the double staging of the central subway uh, affecting people's kind of first impressions of it? Like, it's this shiny new toy that everyone's been talking about and everyone's excited about, and then having it for two or three months just have weekend service. I'm asking this non-rhetorically, just wondering your thought. Like, are you worried people will be like, oh, it's only going on the weekends, and this, it's not, the tea isn't going in? Like, ah, I'm not going to take it. Like, are you worried that it might affect the way people just kind of feel about it in general and we won't get two bites out of the apple? So obviously we need to make sure we have a strong communications uh, approach that you know this is just a soft opening, that we want, we're in final stages of training. Um, but we're fortunate that uh, the southern end of the train shuttle you know, comes out of the subway onto the surface of 4th Street, right there within view of the Caltrain station and the T3rd line. So fortunately, the way the central subway is designed, it's easy to imagine, like, oh, right, I see the tracks keep going, and in January, 
uh, the train is going to continue along the T3. What we were more worried about was, uh, for example, taking the T3rd into the central subway weekends only. So we're intentionally keeping the T as it is. People can have their familiar commute. Uh, we'll do the soft launch, and then we'll go immediately into the full service with all of the additional routing changes that come along with it. Got it. And so will the T not go around the Embarcadero anymore then? That's right. So this is where a lot of the travel time savings occurs. So as you know, like if you're coming northbound on the T, you'd get stuck on the 4th Street Bridge over Mission Creek, and then you'd get stuck in the 4th and King intersection, and then you'd trundle along the Embarcadero, and you've got to go a long way yeah. around the Horn. Yeah. Um, so allowing the T to go straight up 4th, um, and then into the central subway, which is remarkably fast. Uh, when I like the most disappointing thing to me uh, about this line, as I've been writing it and testing, is the ride is really short. Like you're suddenly you're there. Um, I but believe we that's call a, that a humble brag. That's a trip that takes like a trip that takes 20 minutes on the bus. Now it takes five minutes on the train. Uh, my last question on central subway is about this. And I'm sorry, I haven't gone on a tour yet, but this apparent long walk between with the Powell connection that happens uh, on the map, it's kind of like a squiggly. Mm -hmm. And we've all we've traveled in subways, you know, subways in other cities, and sometimes a transfer takes a while to go. I can think of a few in New York City where you're walking and walking, and you can't believe you're still walking, uh, but eventually you get to your train. So I'm not. I understand that there might need to be a long transfer, but can you talk a little bit yep. about this long transfer and how we're spicing her up a little bit? So the Union Square station connects into the existing Market Street Powell station. And if you look at it in plan view, it's like, oh, okay, well, here's the, here's the Market Street station and here's the Union Square station, and they look like they're far apart. However, when you look at it in three dimensions, you realize that the Central Subway Station is very deep. So the Central Subway goes beneath Muni Metro, beneath BART. It's uh, it's way down there. It's like... Yeah, like where the stalagmites well, and the stalactites yeah, yeah, like are. Yeah, the, the walls are warm because you're yeah. near the core of the Magma. earth. But, but we're fortunate that the escalator run from the, um, the Central Subway platform up to the Powell mezzanine the escalator is what bridges the horizontal gap between the central subway station and the Powell mezzanine. So when you get off the train at Union Square, there's an escalator right there, like right in front of you. You take this very, 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 very long escalator up that deposits you, uh, I don't know, within like 50 feet of the, um, the Powell Street station mezzanine. Oh. So it's like you're so there. It, so is it? Would you would you say it is appropriately? Um, it would be a fabrication to say that it's a very long walk between one and the other. I think only people who have not ridden the central subway and made the transfer will say that it is a long I see. walk. It's just a very long escalator. Yeah, and okay. again, it, it's the problem is plan view versus yeah. a three dimensional. Okay, thank you so much. I was hearing bandied about in the community that you're going to have to walk like 15 minutes from one station to the other, and I was like, that seems incorrect, but good to know that's wrong. Thank you. Thank you. Directors, any final questions of Director Tumlin? I'm excited about the 19th. Can't wait for that to happen. Excited about Valencia Street and, and what we find out there. Um, and I'll open it up to public comment. So if there are people in the room who'd like to comment on the director's report, or any of the comments made by directors related to director's report, including updates from Director Heminger on Caltrain. 
<laughs> now it's the time to do so. So if you'd like to speak in the room, please go ahead and approach the podium. If you are online, you can put yourself in the queue by pressing star three. So we're starting with the room. First speaker who'd like to speak on this topic may approach the podium. I do have one speaker card for Robert Sassani. Mr. Sassani? Whomever's in the room is fine too. If you're not, if it doesn't have to be that you have a card. Good afternoon. Um, I'm a taxi medallion holder and I'm asking you to suspend revocations of taxi medallions from disabled drivers until you have an inquiry. Because from our perspective, if somebody is disabled under federal law, the taxi division cannot say to them, but you haven't got a California driver's license because you are disabled, and therefore we are going to revoke your medallion. Now, this recently happened in the Board of Appeals. A gentleman who was knifed 20-some years ago and is legally blind and has been operating his permit without problems has had his medallion revoked. And I'm just giving you this as an example because actually hundreds of medallions have been revoked. And in public comment, I will explain to you what this... But I'm asking you to suspend all revocations until such time as you have studied this and we have a public meeting for medallion holders and interested parties in order to resolve this because we consider this to be racketeering and we believe there are as many as 300 permits involved in this. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Are there any other additional speakers in the room who would like to speak regarding the director's report and any of the comments related to the director's report? Seeing none in the room, we'll move to online callers. First caller in the queue. We have seven speakers. First speaker, please. Um, thank you, uh, Chair Gwyneth Ford and uh, Alita Dupree for the record. My pronouns are she and her. Uh, first of all, I'm looking forward to us doing this soft opening of the central subway. As, uh, I plan to use it. I think it'll be very helpful to me. The uh, last time I was in San Francisco, I was up in Chinatown, and the, the 30 Stockton was just absolutely packed, and after one stop, I got off. Um, so I'm looking forward to it getting this done, and hopefully it will stay open, and we don't have to close it up with, like, what happened with the Market Street subway uh, about uh, two years ago. And I I'm interested in this Muni Safety Equity Initiative. I'm going to impress this upon you that I ask that it be a expansive and inclusive program because gender is not that simple. And so I want us to be able to embrace the differences in people because here's what I'm concerned about. That if I were to be harassed on Muni and uh, I report it 
that somebody who may not understand the person like myself might say, well, why are you wearing a skirt? Why are you wearing a skirt on the train? You shouldn't wear a skirt on muting. That answer will apply with me. I would, I would be very unhappy if somebody ever felt that way about people who are different riding muni. And I also think that people who live outside of San Francisco uh, should be eligible to file complaints with muni, that it should not just be about people from San Francisco. 30 seconds. Because we have our visitor constituents. So I hope that we can have some explainers and ensure that this program is broad enough based that when people file a complaint, they're not going to be judged based on their differences, but that their matters will be heard and acted on. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Hi, uh, Chair Board and Vice Chair Eakin and Directors. My name is Scott Feeney. Uh, since the Valencia Street project was mentioned, I wanted to make a brief comment on that. Um, I'm excited to see uh, attention on Valencia again, but like many people that have seen the uh, center running bikeway open house, I have serious concerns about that design, both for safety and its impact on business. Uh, when DC did a similar bike lane, they actually found that bicycle crashes, the rate of bicycle crashes went up afterwards because of illegal U-turns. In addition, um, it makes it hard for cyclists to go in and stop at a business if uh, you know they can't easily access it mid-block, they have to cross over traffic to go to a mid-block store or restaurant. So I just wanted to call your attention to the fact that people in the community have developed what I feel is a better option for Valencia, the so-called burrito plan. This takes uh, the notion that parklets are basically like a transitional step to widening the sidewalk. Valencia does have very crowded sidewalks. And so if you take the space in between the parklets and make them pedestrian space, um, and then uh, handle loading by having a loading zone in the middle of the street, car traffic goes one way, and you put a two-way bike lane on the other side, you get a safe option that's better for business because it's easier for bike bikers to stop at a business because there's more space for outdoor dining. 30 seconds. And. Um, since uh, those of you on the board have asked MTA staff to bring you more ambitious options, I think you should ask them to include the burrito plan as an option for Valencia. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Feeney. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon, board members and Director Tumlin. My name is Parker Day. I just wanted to comment quickly on the Valencia bikeway project since it was mentioned, especially since there was some talk about the effectiveness of safety and safety of soffit posts. One of my greatest concerns with the design that's proposed is for people who are entering and exiting the bikeway around these plastic posts. This is because cyclists are often not just biking through the Valencia corridor, they're usually visiting businesses along the corridor as well. Entering and exit the center bike lane, especially between the posts, has the potential to be quite dangerous in my experience. I, for some context, I ride a bike within San Francisco almost daily for transportation. And in April, I was biking on Market Street when I struck a damaged plastic post that was protecting the bikeway there. This caused me to crash and need an ambulance ride to the emergency room. I broke my nose, I bit through my lip, and I needed seven stitches in my face, which was um, really quite painful, but it could have been even worse. Um, it's 
really surprising because I wasn't traveling that fast and I was biking on a stretch of road that I know well and bike often. The Valencia design has the potential to be worse than that where I, where I crashed on market because the design requires even more maneuvers between posts just to get in and out of the bikeway. Uh, it's acknowledged in the SFMTA project FAQs and um, this has me extremely concerned because I don't want anyone to crash, um, especially as the posts get damaged by drivers. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Hey, good afternoon. This is Barry Toronto. I want to address some of the topics that were discussed during the director's report. First, uh, regarding uh, Evans Avenue. I did have a chance the other day to drive down it and noticed it was lane, one lane each direction, but it was at night. I'm concerned during the peak time hours, it could deter uh, the ability for taxi drivers to want to serve the Hunters Point area. And I think it's important uh, to actually uh, get a report sooner than later about how many bicyclists are using these bike lanes and, and the impact that has on traffic so that you hear, hear from it sooner than later and the impact it has on emergency vehicles. Uh, the one lane in each direction can be, a, can be a problem, and also the fact that at Phelps there is the traffic light that, that causes a huge buildup of cars. So uh, it creates more problems than it solves. Regarding Valencia Street, uh, if you look at that latest uh, report, uh, one of the online websites published about, um, about parking uh, citations, I think it's a concern that uh, double parking and bike lane citations we're at a minimal compared to the, to the uh, street cleaning. And I think it's important to, uh, to actually put a focus on, on the early evening and, uh, and the weekend uh, enforcement of those type of violations rather than, than, than focus so much on, on street cleaning. Uh, I know it's important, but, uh, and a lot of it's done at night or the early morning hours. But I think seconds. you also need to put, put some PCOs. I think uh, uh, it's abhorrent without at least giving them a lot more money to have them issue traffic citations when you could have more at least issue parking citations that could alleviate the issues. I think, I think it's a major problem that you are not focusing more on citations that have to do with, with uh, transit impeding vehicles. And, uh, and I hope that you will uh, focus on that more rather than uh, acquiesce to the TNCs. Thank you, Thank you very Toronto. much. Next speaker, please. This is, this is Herbert Weiner. I am concerned about the effectiveness of Vision Zero. Has progress been made with the lessening of pedestrian casualties since the inception of Vision Zero? And if Vision Zero does not achieve its goal by 2024, what will be the future of Vision Zero? Will it be disbanded or will it be refunded? Uh, Director Tumlin has stated that Muni is in desperate financial straits right now. So I am concerned about the effectiveness of Vision Zero and would like to know statistically how it is um, how it has succeeded. Now, maybe the response will be to go to a website to see how effective Vision Zero is. 
I think there should be a direct response from uh, either Director Tumlin or Muni staff as to how effective it is. I think we need direct statistics as to the effectiveness of Vision Zero and the lessening of pedestrian casualties. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Can you hear me okay? Yes, we can, Mr. Popel. Great, uh, David Popel. So uh, great to hear, among other people, from Alita Dupree earlier. I look forward to seeing her again in San Francisco and on Muni. Um, further on item seven, the director's report, if you could please post the slides from the director's report presentation online. I'm very interested in that. That would be most helpful on the webpage. Um, I've expressed concern before. I continue to be concerned about how people will get to and from the Embarcadero um, if the T only runs to uh, Chinatown starting in January, uh, particularly safely in bad weather if people are going to be forced to walk across the street from the Fourth and King uh, platform to the King and Fourth platform in inclement weather. I think that's going to result in an injury, possibly an accident or something worse, and I think that's avoidable. The way I understand it now, the J and the M end at Embarcadero, the KT and the N run through Embarcadero starting in January. I would, I'm led to believe that the J K only uh, and M will turn at Embarcadero and only the N will run through um, and again force that transfer from the N to the T at uh, 4th and King. Um, I think that's going to cause problems for events at Chase Center and other things. 30 seconds. I would strongly, thanks, I would strongly encourage reconsideration of that operating uh, plan, and I'm happy to talk to staff about that. Uh, moving very quickly, is the emphasis on gender-based harassment reflected in Muni passenger rules and regulations? And if not, I think those rules and regulations should be reviewed. And to Director Heminger, there was a transit police in the 1970s, and both police and sheriff's department staff were considered for uh, enforcement officers you, on Mr. Muni, Pilpel. and ultimately the fair inspectors were created. Sorry, Thanks. your time is up, Mr. Pilpel. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Next speaker. Moderator, maybe we can skip the line and move to another line. Hi, my name is Stacey Brandecker, and I'm calling. Um, well, first, I will say, hey, the 55 battery electric buses are going by today, and that was a really nifty sight to see. I like the lightning bolt and everything, and yeah, so uh, good stuff there. Um, but I, I am concerned about Valencia Street. The center running bike lanes, as um, uh, Scott mentioned earlier, are, are just, um, it's actually treating bikes as like a, we're second-class citizens. So before, we just had to fight with um, people trying to park and double parking and things like this. Now it is a, you will, you, you will go until the end of the block. You cannot even think of pulling over ahead of time, something that, you know, when you're just a step above a pedestrian, you should be able to do. 
Um, and because um, if you try and stop in the lane, you will, you know, screw up the cyclist behind you. And, oh, you've got to, like, go through moving traffic, most likely. It's just, it is absolutely, uh, center running lanes are for expressways. They are for isolated places where there is no need to pull over. They make total sense in those applications. And they're also armored because you're between two lanes of moving vehicles. It's just you wouldn't put a sidewalk there. Why would you put a bike lane there? It does not make sense for Valencia. And furthermore, I would, um, I hope that we are bringing back closed on the weekends. And I would encourage you to look at. I would encourage you to look at a moving towards a car-free Valencia. There, there is so much going on there. Everywhere you can put in. Um, a, Diverters at the ends of the, the intersections, perhaps between 18th and 19th, um, or do things mid-block, anything to make it so that cars do not want to drive there, um, but people have more access. It's the best place Thank for you, it. Mr. Thank Andecker. you, Mr. Andecker. Your time is up. Thanks. Next speaker, please. Uh, hi, my name is Michael Howley, uh, resident in, in District 8. Just a couple of quick comments about some of the, the things from the director's report and the conversations that followed. Uh, first, I'd like to echo previous callers about the Valencia center lane. Uh, it's really unsafe. And I know you have to balance a lot of competing interests, but this really does seem like the, the worst possible outcome for uh, even experienced uh, cyclists who want to be able to visit the Valencia corridor. Uh, or move north south of the mission. Uh, and there's going to be a lot of opportunities for feedback on that. And I hope that this board and staff uh, pay attention. This isn't just people being cranky. It's we, we fear for our lives. Um, I also have a couple of comments on the, the Evans bike lane. Uh, really appreciate Director Heminger's line of questioning about uh, whether this constitutes uh, protection. And I, I'd like to uh, riff on a couple of the responses that Director Shumlin had. Um, one that if the, the fire, center fire lane isn't working for SFFD, we, we really have to recognize that the reason why it's not working is because of drivers and cars. And if that's the case, it means that you're putting uh, people on bikes uh, at further risk from drivers and cars because other drivers in their cars are ruining things for the fire department and then the fire department is putting pressure on you to keep the rest of us vulnerable. Uh, so please keep that in mind in, in your designs and consider what that means about your priorities for uh, hardening the protection versus uh, making the fire department deal with the drivers themselves instead of us. 30 seconds. Uh, and lastly, uh, I appreciate Director Tumlin saying that we can't know how people will use facilities based on modeling. Uh, I totally agree. Quick builds are a great way to get real world data. And so I'd like you to consider that uh, in regards to the Franklin Street quick build safety project where it appears a traffic engineer removed road diet as from one of the options based purely on his own modeling. Uh, and I think you should re you should consider reinstituting uh, that Thank road you. diet. Your time so that you is can complete. Thank real you for your comments. That concludes speakers in the queue. Great. So with that, we will close public comment to move on to our next item. Places you on item number eight, the Citizens Advisory Council report. Uh, we have no report today. Okay, we'll move on to our next item. Places you on item number nine, general public comment. Members of the public may address the SFMTA Board of Directors on matters that are within the board's jurisdiction and not on today's calendar. I have one speaker card, Robert Sessani. 
Yes, and just as a reminder, this is for items not on today's calendar. If you have an item on today's calendar, please speak at that corresponding number. That includes those online from the phone line. Don't press star three unless you want to speak to general public comment. If you want to speak on a specific item, please wait till we call the item to press star three. First speaker in the room, please. Thank you. Good afternoon. I would like to point out the folly of the MTA with this whole question of airport permits. The thing that I would point out that you made a terrible mistake on creating them at a price that couldn't be sustained. Having done that and having gone through a lawsuit with the poor people in the credit union and with the thought that you would like to now reduce the price, why are you subsidizing the credit union? Because drivers don't want to drive cars that are P cars. And you have a substantial deficit of the number of cabs on the road because nobody wants to drive non-P cars. So you're subsidizing the credit union enormously because they rent out all the medallions that have come into default. And I don't know how many there are now, but I would guess probably at least 300, possibly more. And so, you're shooting yourself in the foot. Please allow all cabs to go to the airport. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please, in the room. Hi, my name is Bradley Solomon. I wanted to speak on Slow Lake Street. Is it appropriate to speak now on that? Yes, yes. Thank, thank you for the opportunity. I just wanted to say, as someone who has lived adjacent to Lake Street for uh, most of my life. Um, I'm just really hopeful and encouraged in hearing that there's a possibility that Lake Street is going to be opened up again. I understand that a lot of um, provisions are going to be put in to make the street safer. I just wanted to say for the record, and correct me if I'm wrong based on its history, but I never understood Lake Street to be a dangerous street. I actually felt it was one of the safest streets in our neighborhood. And um, I realize why these provisions are being put in to sort of placate the folks who still want to slow Lake Street. But the fact of the matter is, is that between Geary, Clement, California, and Lake, we've lost half of the lanes that were used to commute and the traffic in our neighborhood has just gone crazy since Slow Lake Street came into play. So please open that street for the sake of our neighborhood and for safety because it's become dangerous on the other streets. Uh, so I implore you to reopen Lake Street as soon as possible. Um, it will be a savior for a neighborhood that I've lived in my whole life. Thanks so much. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Hi, my name is Susan Ciutat. I'm a 23-year resident of San Francisco, and I've been here a few times before. Um, I just want to say, first of all, that 
I want to thank you for your service, because I've sat through a lot of these meetings, and you obviously clearly have a lot on your plate, and I appreciate the service that you do for the city. Um, I wanted to say, in regard to the issue of having a hearing on stopping poverty toes, you mentioned in your last meeting that you plan to do so, and I just wanted to emphasize that really time is of the essence. Every week that goes by that these toes continue, there are more people who are living on the edge whose lives are being made a lot more difficult. There's been a lot of talk today about a desire to end harassment and saying we want everyone to be respectful of everyone. And to quote Director Tumlin, we want to cultivate a sense of mutual respect for all San Franciscans. And right now, SFMTA is not doing that themselves. They are being very disrespectful of the unhoused who are desperately trying to keep it together living in their vehicles. Imagine what it would be like if every time you left your home to look for a job, to try and get food stamps, to get medical care, you didn't know if it was going to be there when you got back. There was recently a large number of toes in the Bayview. And these are now people who are being put out on the street by SFMTA. So please, hold this hearing as soon as possible. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Hi, I'm Flo Kelly with the uh, Coalition on Homelessness, and I'm representing Stop Poverty Toes today. Poverty Toes are catastrophic because, as the name implies, it is the most vulnerable community who have extremely low incomes who are negatively impacted. It is not okay for SFMTA to target vehicles for towing, which result in more people being without homes and left on the sidewalk as Susan um, eloquently spoke about. Pit count and other data are clear. After two years of the pandemic, there are even more homeless people. People who rely on their cars to get to work, people who live in their vehicles, because our so-called progressive city has astronomical rents that require many people to pay way more than 50% of their very limited incomes. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer. To me, it sounds like a Charles Dickens novel describing real life examples of people who live in extreme poverty. Is San Francisco no better than the 1800s in England? Four people who live in their vehicles plan to be here today, but due to health issues, two of them are here and two of them were not able to come to make public comment due to, um, because of health issues. Today, we have Cindy, who with her two friends designed and implemented a survey to make clear to you the effect of towing on people's lives. I hope you all have had the opportunity to read the email that we sent just before the last board meeting. You will see that 92% of the 80 vehicular housed people that were surveyed have been towed at some point in their lives, as many as 40% were towed three to five times in about half. Okay, I know I have to go.
Thank you. Next speaker, please. Hi, my name is Cindy Keener, and um, I live in my camper. I've had three, four vehicles taken away from me. Go, go to the store, come back, no vehicle. I've had friends just be dumped on the um, sidewalk, with no place to go, no food, just laid there and died. You know, it's got to stop. We're somebody. I live on Social Security. I can't afford a place of my own here. Because for instance, it's too expensive. Please think about people that are real, that are living in poverty. Please, thank you. Thank you. Hi, my name is Jordan Smith. Uh, in July of 2018, my RV was towed. I got a knock on the door, was told to, to move, vacate my RV, move all my stuff out of my RV, uh, and the RV was towed uh, by SFMTA illegally. Um, due to traffic tickets. There's a policy by SFMTA that says that it needs to be booted for three days in order for it to be, to give me an opportunity to go and raise money, get the money together to pay the tickets. That was not the case. It did not happen. I got 30 minutes notice. Um, after I got a lot of my items out of, out of my RV, uh, DPW came through and decided to start throwing my items into the back of a garbage truck. I tried to intervene, but was placed in handcuffs by the San Francisco Police Department. Um, then I was told I had 30 days to get my RV out of uh, auto return. At day 29, I had raised enough money to pay the auto return fee and pay off my tickets. I went to auto return, and they said, I'm sorry, we sold your RV yesterday. This is complete, utter garbage. I, 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 I lost everything. I lost my job. I lost my house, which everything worked in it. I lost my RV. I lost everything. Everything else that I owned got stolen from me because I was on the street. I had nowhere safe to keep it. It was, it, I, it's taken me up until today barely to get back what I've gotten, what I had lost. I, it's, it's, it's insane what you got, what these, you know, and it's, I'm not the only one. It's happening to everybody out there in an RV. It's, it's absolutely insane. And, and the fact that when I found out that you had violated your own policy by not booting my vehicle and giving me three days to get come up with the money, which I could have. That infuriated me. And then I found out, oh, you only have six months to sue. Oh, well, I found that out at seven months. So I couldn't sue. So I lost my RV. I lost all my belongings. I couldn't get my RV out of auto return because they sold it. They didn't sell it the day before. They sold it two weeks earlier. I'm so, I'm so sorry, sir, for your loss. It doesn't make sense. We'll have staff. I don't know what we can do, but that that's, that doesn't that policy doesn't make sense. That it shouldn't have happened that way. So I I, I apologize because I can't bring your stuff back to you. But I understand. We'll but have somebody follow up with you to figure out what happened here and how this could have happened. Because it's can't it's happen. gone. Everything's gone. Everything I owned is gone. Thank you for sharing your story. Next speaker, please. 
Chair Borden, would you like to move to the online? Yes, please. We do have 13 speakers in the queue. First speaker. Good afternoon, Chair and Directors. Eliana Bender, Policy Associate for GLIDE. I'm speaking on behalf of the End Poverty Toast Coalition, representing over 80 local community-based organizations. You just heard from my colleagues, Flo and Susan, who have done some tremendous outreach to people who are vehicularly housed, as well as individuals directly harmed by poverty toes. It has now been over 16 months since the SFMTA board called on staff to present on why it continues to conduct these toes, which needlessly entrench poverty. During general public comment at the last SFMTA board meeting, Chair Borden said, for those people who are calling about poverty toes, we will be having a hearing. It may not be the next meeting, but we do have one upcoming this fall. We are looking forward to this long-awaited discussion and would like to know when it will be scheduled, if it will consist of an informational hearing on poverty toes, or if there will be an actionable item on the agenda with a potential vote to end poverty toes. This conversation takes on new importance because the city is being sued over its debt toes, exposing the city to significant liability in the process, and SFMTA's response is due next month. Last week, Los Angeles received a federal court ruling that its debt toes are unconstitutional. Los Angeles has stopped these toes after they were sued, and SFMTA should do the same. Please take action to end poverty toes. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Hi. Good afternoon. This is uh, Barrett Toronto again. First, I want to say I uh, took the number nine bus to the post-Labor Day uh, Labor Council breakfast and uh, had a pleasant experience with both uh, drivers to and from the meeting. Uh, excuse me, to and from the event. It was a great experience. Uh, it gave my trust again in Muni, uh, an eventless, uh, and the, the bus drivers were the bus operators were fantastic. Uh, and that's saying, I am very much concerned. I want to segue on Robert Susanna that uh, by uh, limiting access to the airport all the time to only the purchase medallion holders and the ramp drivers, you are limiting the uh, income and the opportunities for other drivers. Considering that the training is minimal at this point for new drivers. So I advise no one to become a cab driver at this point if, if, if you're not gonna be able to have access to the airport because of the, of the fact that nowadays more than ever, more than ever, uh, the non-pays have increased 100% uh, over, over even during the pandemic. So the chances of picking up somebody in the Tenderloin and getting paid are almost slim to none at this point, and we need some relief from the MTA to help deal with the loss of income from people who refuse to pay the complete fare or the fare at all. And it's a problem, and, and there's no real major carrot at the end of the stick. 30 seconds. Uh, and I, I, I ask you that you get more parking control officers. I know that you're having a, a limited amount of staffing and everything, but, uh, but you need to put some focus on some of the evening uh, 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 posts rather than just, um, just the daytime activity. The cab stands are occupied by the private cars. The bus lanes are occupied by the private cars. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. Next speaker, please.
Hello, board members. Uh, my name is Shiva Bandiva. I'm a public policy manager of HomeRise, a permanent supportive housing provider in the city. Today, I'm calling as a member of the Stop Poverty Toes to urge you to present a report on poverty toes that the community has been requesting for over 16 months. This board called on staff to present on why it continues to conduct poverty toes, but such a report has not been created nor presented. Poverty toes destabilize low income and particularly house individuals and families. It is completely disheartening to know that this city and this board places a protection of capital over the lives of our most vulnerable. Our residents are homerised, are predominantly elderly folks from black and brown communities. Their lives have been impacted by the lack of economic opportunities within their own communities. These folks, these are folks who rely on government support on a monthly basis. So when their vehicles are towed, it is a direct target on their inability to move out of the cycle of poverty. This poverty tows report from SSMTA staff was initially expected to take three months, and we should have had this discussion last September. It is entirely reasonable to ask for, for ending poverty tows to be calendared as soon as possible for a discussion and for a vote. San Francisco needs to set an example for the rest of the Bay Area that we are moving into an equitable transit practices. Please schedule a hearing and permanently end poverty tows. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Hello. 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 Yes. Hi. Yes. Uh, my, my name is Dennis Corcus, and I've, I've uh, been a t taxi driver for over four decades. Um, I received my medallion just prior to, to the time when Uber and Lyft uh, flooded our streets and sent the taxi industry uh, into a downward spiral. I've served on a number of taxi industry boards and committees. It's essential that, that when a cab goes, goes to work, it has access to wherever there's public demand for cabs, hotels, convention centers, hospitals, and of course, the, the airport. Uh, these many pieces of the taxi business uh, make it whole. If you remove one piece of that business, it reduces not only business, but public service. In uh, 2020, when this board voted to not allow full access to what are called K and pre-K medallions to, to the airport, it made the industry much weaker and reduced public service. K and pre-K medallions have become less profitable and less desirable to rent. The the San Francisco taxi fleet has been reduced by at least 50%, and there's been a severe reduction in cabs service. Sporting events, concerts, and the airport are not being fully served because of this MTA policy. In 2020, the board voted to, to reduce, uh, to voted for this policy to be because of, of congestion at, at the airport. But in 2020, it was the year of the pandemic. There was no, no congestion. Ms. Kate Torin said that, that this policy was actually to empower the P medallions, who are the latest purchasers of those medallions, Thank in you. order to I'm sorry, your time help is them up. with- Thank you. Next speaker, please. Um, thank you, uh, Chair Gwyneth Ford and uh, Alina Dupree for the record sheet. Um, 
I, I did come to San Francisco for a weekend. Uh, well, really mostly in Oakland. Um, I admit to you, I didn't use Muni at all. BART was having a half-off sale. So um, I used BART within San Francisco and saved some money, and I'm not going to apologize for it. So I ask you to consider perhaps a fair sale uh, to encourage people to use uh, Muni. And um, I come to you simply as an ordinary user of Muni in sharing my stories, which I think are important. Um, I ask that you take my testimony for the substance of what it is and not score it for less because I am different. Because I want a Muni that will welcome all who are different. Because this is what I want for Muni. That simply for me, when I pay a fare and follow the rules of conduct on Muni, that I do, that I should be able to experience Muni just as fairly and equitably as anybody else. That last I read, it is okay to wear Muni, to wear a skirt on Muni. And I wore a skirt to one of your meetings, and I plan to continue to do so. So I ask that Muni be willing to engage with all of those who are different. We who are different do not seek to make people uncomfortable. 30 seconds. But to simply be our authentic selves. And it is true that aircraft turbulence may be uncomfortable, but I assure you that it is not unsafe. I ask that you be willing to engage with us who are different and see us as valid, fair-paying users of a system that our presence helps and not hinders. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Good evening, my name is Bernard Dechier. I am with the San Francisco Taxi Coalition. A couple of weeks ago, we sent you a letter asking you to resign the section 1109E2 from the Transportation Code. This code prevents over 50% of the taxi fleet from picking up passengers at the airport. This policy is bad all around. It is bad for the majority of medallion holders and drivers who are forbidden to pick up at SFO. It is bad for taxi companies as they can't find drivers to drive cabs that can pick up at SFO. SFO's fares are among the most profitable. It's almost impossible for drivers to make a living without getting an airport ride. As a result, drivers quit the industry altogether. But more importantly, it is catastrophic for the riding public. It is very hard to hail a cab on city street as cab drivers allowed to pick up at SFO prefer to wait at SFO for the most lucrative fares. If you have tried lately to find a cab in, in, in San Francisco, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Also, passengers arriving at the airport often have to wait to get a taxi. 30-minute wait is not uncommon nowadays. And as less of half of the fleet is permitted to pick up 30 seconds. Supposedly, the original idea for implementing this misguided policy was to eliminate taxi, taxi congestion. But with the Taxi Queue app, there is no cab congestion nowadays, and SFO and this policy has to be as to as no reason to exist i urge you to schedule and vote on getting rid of this catastrophic policy thank you 
Thank you. Next speaker, please. Can you hear me well? Yes, we can. My name is Marcelo Fonseca. I'm a longtime member of the tax industry, and I'm a K medallion holder. Um, if the partnership with Uber is to be a success, and if it really increases demand for taxis, how can the tax industry meet the demand while this agency cuts down on the number of taxis available to service the public? A lot of the medallions acquired before the medallion sales program of 2010 have either been revoked or driven out of business by your myotic policies. And out of the 703 medallions sold through the medallion sales program, it's safe to assume that about 300 of them have been foreclosed on. We, we used to have almost 2,000 cabs in the San Francisco fleet. Now we are down to a meager 1,075. We all know that 700 cabs are not enough to meet the, meet the demand in the city, and neither can 400 cabs meet the demand at the airport. And that is exactly what your airport policy is doing. It only allows about 400 purchase medallions to service SFO. Um, your airport policy is destroying the tax industry, trying to save what's left of a failed medallion sales program. 30 seconds. I urge you, I urge you to end this airport policy. I urge you to allow all medallions to service SFO. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. This is Herbert Weiner. Uh, one thing I really have a complaint about is the bias of the MTA board and MTA management. They don't recognize the needs of motorists. They are at the bottom of the heap, and there actually should be some representation on this board. Uh, secondly, I think the uh, deal that was crafted with Uber is very destructive to the taxi drivers, and it is really unfair. And basically, Uber is a failed corporation. They don't even turn a profit. All they do is they go after more money to keep themselves alive, and they're doing it on the backs of the taxi drivers. Three, the tollway policy is so destructive as this previous gentleman testified, he lost everything. This is so cruel and so destructive. My opinion, if there's a tollway policy, you should tow away muni management. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. <clears throat> we can help. Hello? We, can, we can hear you. Thank you. Hi, hello. Um, my name is Andrea Costavera, and uh, I just want to note that it's 2.50 p.m., and I've been on this one uh, phone, which has almost run out on me, and uh, I am actually living this hell that the court is fighting. I am 59 years old. I am disabled with an inoperable 
spinal cord disability and injury that I was born with partially, and then I was in two near fatal accidents. The second one being 20 years ago, where I was a passenger asleep in the passenger seat when the car was in a horrific accident going a speed of 130 miles per hour, not kilometers, miles. Now, um, I have been homeless, rendered homeless, and I was born in this country. However, this accident, the second near fatal accident happened in Germany. The first one, I was hit by a truck in uh, um, San Francisco, and that was also very bad, rendered me two and a half years bedridden. This other accident rendered me about seven years. I was completely bedridden. I will never be better. Uh, like I said, inoperable. No doctor will ever operate on me. And so I got SSI, which I fought for for 18 years, and I still don't understand that logic. And of course, I'm going to need more than two minutes because I also have somebody else here who wants to speak on my phone, and um, I will be talking for him because he, uh, you know, because language, whatever. But um, 30 seconds. I'm I'm outside right now, living outside with no chance, no nothing, because they promised not chose my hand on August 26th when we had a quote-unquote resolution. I don't know why it's worded like that because it's not a resolution. It is a destruction of people's lives. You are destroying people. And I want you to see both of you. I put myself in school. I've never ever lived off of... Thank you. I'm so sorry, but your time is up. Sorry about that. Next speaker, please. Hello? Yes, we can hear you. Uh, my name is Alan Grenitz. I have a quick question about um, what has happened to the uh, Lake Street improvements and the Lake Street uh, reopening schedule. I thought it was supposed to be on today's agenda. It is not on today's agenda. Has it been postponed or is it resolved or what I, I haven't been able to find we, any information we haven't, about what we have not yet scheduled we have not yet scheduled our slow streets um we have we have scheduled a meeting now is it on the schedule public, public it is your uh it is your special meeting okay we have a special meeting set up for october 14th and that's when we discuss slow streets terrific thank you very much okay thank you next speaker please Hi, uh, my name is Mary McGuire, and I want to address the airport taxicab policy uh, that labels drivers, separates them into three groups. Uh, first is P, allowed exclusive entry into SFO, and they have access to the virtual queue app, which offers uh, the advantage of taking fares in the city while you're waiting for your turn to serve customers at the airport. The K, Ks have no access to virtual queue, except on rare occasions. Um, mostly that's late at night when Uber surges, and there's extremely high demand for taxis. But by the time the land side operations calls for Ks to come in, there could be hundreds, I mean hundreds, I've seen this, of potential customers waiting on the stands. T is the lowest group, and they're not allowed access to the airport at any time. So I ask, <coughs> excuse me, that you reevaluate the reason for this program and ask yourselves why. I mean, why is there this separation and inequality among cab drivers? 
And the reasons that have been offered to you keep changing. First, it was to alleviate congestion. Then it was to help the purchase medallion holders pay off their loans. But now, P medallions are in extremely high demand, and the drivers are at mercy of the cab company management as to whether they can lease them or not. So it's kind of just like the old days. If you were not in favor with cab company management or you didn't tip enough, you had to drive an old beat-up cab. So we're, we're just going back to that. Um, so the medallion sales program, it was a mistake. But please, please stop trying to fix it at the expense of cab drivers. They didn't do anything wrong. The cause is. It, so please, I ask you to stop this apartheid system and give equal opportunity to all cab drivers. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. So yesterday I got a survey reminder about the uh, public outreach survey that SFMCA is doing. And uh, that, that made me start thinking about how you guys just don't do enough public outreach. For example, on the Folsom Howard Streetscape project, the eighth spatial will be moved to Folsom Street going inbound. And that will add at least five minutes to the trip for people traveling from the southeast part of the city. But there has been zero outreach to the riders on that line. And I don't even know if there will ever be any meeting to the people who are impacted by this change. And they'll be blindsided within the next five years when this change takes place. And they have no input whatsoever into this change that directly impacts their community. Thank you. Does that conclude your remarks? Thank you for your comments. Next speaker, please. Can you hear me now? Yes, go ahead. Great, David Pilpil again. Um, so a few brief points under general public comment. So I hear that Therese McMillan of MTC is retiring soon, perhaps by the end of the year, and there may be a health issue there. My um, thanks go out to her for her work um, supporting the region and mobility and the transit agencies. Um, it might be useful to uh, do something um, honoring or um, appreciating her uh, via the MTA board and the various other uh, transit operators in the Bay Area, and my good thoughts uh, go to her. Um, next, on next week's scheduled meeting of the Policy and Governance Committee uh, that was on the approved uh, schedule, the board approved uh, last year, I would hope that that meeting will be uh, canceled since it falls on the second day of uh, Rosh Hashanah, and I would not be able to uh, participate. I don't know if there were any items scheduled for the PAG meeting, and I've not seen a cancellation notice yet uh, posted on the website. Um, similarly, the next meeting of this board, I think, is fine for uh, Tuesday, uh, October 4th, um, but uh, recognizing that um, Yom Kippur starts that evening, I hope that we would conclude relatively early so that it doesn't run into um, a scheduling issue for those of us that observe um, 30, sec that. 30 seconds. Thank you. Thank you. And um, finally, um, 
I understand from your interaction with the previous caller that uh, slow streets will be before the MTA board at the special meeting of Friday, October 14th, uh, starting at 1 o'clock. So um, I assume there will be much more information about that and the scope and whatnot prior to that meeting on October 14th for anyone who cares. Okay. Yes, by law. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for those flags, Mr. Pelpel. Next speaker, please. Hello, this is Andrea Costabera again with Ricardo Murillo, and uh, I'm not going to. I'm going to talk really fast. On August 26th, I was promised that my van would not be towed in light of the fact that I'm totally disabled, totally and permanently disabled. I have a placard for 33 years that says that. And not only that, but I had already made arrangements with the city to get my car fixed and go into this uh, park thing or the RV park. And also uh, the Falcon Group was supposed to pay for my registration once it was fixed. They did tow my vehicle, but from 7 a.m. all the way until 2.30 p.m., uh, they told me, and this involved the SFMTA, the San Francisco Police Department, the San Francisco Fire Department, and Captain Mike, whoever his name was, who was very awful to me, and also on, 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 he doesn't know and nothing about ADA accommodation. And by the way, I have been DPW'd or doing people wrong, uh, which means that they crushed my property, uh, vandalized it, uh, stole it because they sell it too, and um, they've done that to me 25 times. Three times were done this past August. Uh, August 3rd, I was also assaulted and battered by Robert Milton, and I had bruises all over my body, and there was no police there, but they uh, crushed and stole a uh, $3,000 mattress with the avocado germ. Anyway, I, I want my van back because it's going to be sold on Thursday, and I have Jason Blant, who works for the Department of Public Health. He talked with uh, 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 David Nakahishi, and I can't find David's 30 seconds anywhere. I want some uh, I want some help. I want my van back. And also my friend here, he was also promised he wouldn't have their, his cars towed. They, they towed both of them. And this is just wrong, wrong, wrong. And if you don't, I mean, I'm definitely filing lawsuits and everything else. But I'm going to make this worldwide uh, known knowledge how San Francisco treats its most vulnerable population, the homeless, the elderly, the disabled, the poor. And I happen to be a part of each one of those categories. I'm sorry. And Thank you I'm so going, much for your comments. Your time is up. Are there any additional callers in the queue? One more. Next speaker, please. Hi, my name is Stacey Randecker, and I've heard a lot from um, taxi drivers and regular drivers, and I'm kind of calling for the kids who are still in school. I can hear a bunch of them over on the playground right now. Um, we, we need to think about the not driving and allowing people to, um, you know, like a little traffic is not bad. That's what keeps speed slower. Um, to think about maybe that cars don't have access to every single square inch of asphalt in the city so that um, people might be able to walk, um, run, bike, uh, just hang out or whatever in some space we don't have community spaces. We turn it all over to motor vehicles. We need to emphasize transit. We're burning the planet. To hear that, oh, Caltrain, um, whatever, we might have to think about not doing five days a week. No, we need to think about making driving as expensive as possible 
and put all our efforts into transit and making it amazing. This is, it's, it's really hard to be in what is, in March, going to be our fifth year anniversary of being a transit first city. We're not getting anywhere on Vision Zero. And we are not helping the climate by, with all the driving and all the focus on it. We absolutely need to do all that we can to make the other alternatives better. That's walking, that's biking, and that's riding the bus and the trains. So please, just think about that when you're making these decisions. 30 when, seconds. You know, what, are we, what are we doing to make all the good things we want to have easier, cheaper, better, and to make the things that are not getting us where we want to be more difficult. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon, directors. My name is Charles Rathbone. I am the holder of a legacy K medallion. Uh, for almost four years now, MTA has restricted cabs with legacy medallions from picking up at the airport. The legal basis for the restriction was for the purpose of alleviating congestion as stated in Transportation Code Section 1109E2. However, there is no taxi-related congestion. Uh, instead of flocking to the airport, taxis form a virtual queue using an app. So now it's time to rescind the obsolete Section 1109E2. And that concludes my comment. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Hello. Hello. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Yeah, this, my name is George Horble. I'm a 43-year uh, uh, veteran driving a cab in San Francisco. I have medallion 1303. Um, I was because of a kidney... Uh, uh, kidney failure and uh, cancer. I was forced to uh, uh, give up driving a cab. But I'm calling about this uh, this terrible policy at the airport, only permitting the P cabs in there. This is not only a bad policy; it's a bad business decision for for uh, for everybody involved. So I would say try to make it mutually beneficial for all our stockholders, all our stakeholders here, like the traveling. Uh, public coming to SFO, the people of San Francisco that need, desire, and want more working cabs on the street, and the cab drivers themselves that uh, need a healthy cab industry to flourish. So why make it so unnecessarily difficult for these people with this prohibitive and short-sighted cab policy at SFO? It's bad news, bad, bad news. So please open the cab lot there for all the medallions. Open SFO to all medallions so they can serve the people coming in. And that way everybody's a winner there. It's a win-win-win. So please, I'm asking you to see the, the writing on the wall, change this terrible policy, and let all the medallions in. And that way it's a win-win and everybody wins. So 30 seconds. I, uh, I appreciate you letting me talk. And please do the right thing and open up the, uh, the cap lot there for all the medallions. Thank you very much. God bless you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. That appears to be the last speaker in the queue. Great. So with that, we will close general public comment and move on to our calendar.
Chair Borden, if I may call items 10A and 10B together? Yes, please. Places you on your regular calendar, items 10A and 10B. 10A, acting as the SFMTA Board of Directors, approving contract number SFMTA 202164-1 for operation and management of the Group A parking facilities consisting of the Ellis O'Farrell Garage, 5th and Mission Garage, Keysar Lot, Mission Bartlett Garage, Moscone Center Garage, 7th and Harrison Lot, General Hospital Garage, 16th and Huff Garage, and Union Square Garage to LAS Parking for a total amount to not to exceed $180 million and a term not to exceed nine years. An initial, an initial term of five years plus two options to extend the term for two years each option. And approving contract number SFMTA 202164-2 for operation and management of the Group B parking facilities consisting of the Japan Center Garages, Civic Center Garage, Golden Gateway Garage, Lombard Garage, North Beach Garage, Performing Arts Garage, Pierce Garage, Pope Bush Garage, Portsmouth Square Garage, St. Mary's Square Garage, Sutter Stockton Garage, and Vallejo Garage to IMCO Parking LLC for an amount not to exceed $180 million and a term not to exceed nine years. Item 10B, acting as the Parking Authority Commission, approving contract number SFMTA 202164-1 for operation and management of the Group A parking facilities, which includes the General Hospital Garage to LAS Parking, California for a total amount not to exceed $180 million and a term not to exceed nine years, and approving contract number SFMTA 202164-2 for operation and management of the Group B parking facilities, which includes the Lombard Garage, North Beach Garage, and Polk Bush Garage to IMCO parking for a total amount not to exceed $180 million and a term not to exceed nine years. Great. So with that, we'll have go move on to have staff to give their presentation. For those tuning in, we're having some technical difficulties pulling up the presentation, so just give us a minute, please. Good afternoon, Chair Borden, directors. Thanks for your patience with our getting the technology going. There we go. Uh, it's nice to see you. Uh, my name is Rob Malone. I'm a manager in the parking and curb subdivision of the streets division. And we're here with you with an item that's about contracts, but also wanted to just discuss a little bit the parking ma garage management program the group, since we don't get an opportunity to come before you very often, provide a little background and context to the contracts that we're bringing to you today. I'm going to start out with just a map. Uh, we do have uh, a subunit that just oversees off-street parking, separate from the rest of the parking that we oversee in the city. Uh, this map uh, shows the 21 access controlled facilities, uh, the two contracts that we're bringing to you, 
are for the management of these access controlled facilities. The unit also oversees uh, 18 surface lots, unstaffed metered surface lots that are throughout the smaller uh, commercial corridors uh, in the city. There's been quite an evolution in the way the city oversees its parking garages over the last 10, 10 years and a little bit more, just to provide a little context there. Um, there were some um, frustration and concern about the oversight of garages in the middle of the first decade of this uh, century. Uh, there was a, it was suggested that an uh, expert consultant uh, be brought in to look at the overall plan for the operation of the par parking garage portfolio in San Francisco. Uh, that report came out in 2008. It's called the Chance Report. Some of you may have heard of it. Uh, that resulted in some uh, staffing change uh, in the parking authority, and also it kicked off an era of significant change in how the agency oversees uh, its parking garage portfolio. Um, we took a step toward significantly enhancing the in-house staff that oversees these parking garages. Uh, and over a four-year period, a four to five-year period that commenced with the inception of the last set of new contracts over garages um, that started in the beginning of 2012, um, there was a buildup of staff, a change in um, the methodology of contracting, we moved from a, at that time, 15 or 16 garages that were directly managed by the agency that had 14 separate contracts uh, to a model starting in 2012 where we had three groups. Um, each contract had six, give or take, uh, garages. The idea being to bring some efficiency to the contract administration process um, and also some consistency of policies and procedures that customers experience out in our garages so that when you're in a garage owned and operated overseen by the city, you should get a, have a consistent look and feel and experience at that garage, whether it's the big, you know, the the big kahunas, if you will, at Fifth and Mission and Sutter Stockton Garage that most people know, to smaller neighborhood garages such as a Mission Bartlett Garage in the Mission or a Lombard Garage uh, um, in the Marina District. Um, so we updated that contract, the sort of um, MO for how we oversee these, enhanced in-house staff to where we now have a, a group of um, six people that just oversee these off-street parking every day that cumulatively probably have about at least 80 years of industry experience uh, under their belts before they came to join MTA. Uh, the last thing we did um, that's really enhanced the customer experience uh, and also made the oversight of garages much more efficient is between 2016 and 2021, we implemented a $35 million upgrade project to what we call the PARCS, which is P-A-R-C-S, which is an acronym for Parking Access and Revenue Control Systems. So we went from garages that were each an individual island, had a server at, uh, in their office, 
and if you wanted any data about what was going on, you needed to be there and, and pull data off of that uh, individual server at that garage. Now what we have is 21 garages, have the latest and greatest in 21st century technology, have enhanced and the most current you know, security credit card security um, that benefits both us, protects our revenue, but also our patrons, their data security. Also, all the transactions that are happening on that network are now happening on a private, city-owned fiber optic network. So we're not using Comcast or AT&T to get out to the internet. We're on a private, city-owned fiber network. Um, that network, beyond, beyond providing that data security, also allows um, the over 300 HD cameras that we installed as part of this upgrade project to feed back to command centers. There's uh, two command centers where each of our contracted vendors can oversee the cameras of all their facilities, but also to the desk of MTA staff, to myself, the director of parking and curb management, at our, at our desk at any time can pull up any camera view in any of the garages and have instant uh, eyes on what's going on in the facility. Um, so there's a significant upgrade in the technology, the contracting methodology, and just the expertise in-house, and you really have now a portfolio that's being directed by MTA staff, and the vendors are really our partners in delivering that service, rather than kind of this more arm's length relationship 15 years ago where we hope our vendors are doing a good job and, and, and have the best, you know, best interests, their interests align with ours. Now the whole way we have arranged things ensures that that's the case. Um, and therefore, um, we are plan, our plans to move forward and, and to build on the success of the last decade with a set of new long-term uh, contracts that continue with this model of efficient group-based uh, contracts with our vendors. Um, I mentioned that the last set of contracts started with a group three group contracts. Additionally, at that time, there were five independent garages that were overseen uh, by uh, city-chartered nonprofit corporations. Uh, in the last 10 years, um, those corporations have either, on one hand, three of them have sunset and are no longer operating. Uh, the other two remaining corporations in Chinatown at the Portsmouth Square and also in Japan Center, um, those corporate corporate entities continue to exist and continue to be valuable partners in ensuring that those neighborhoods get the best service from these facilities. However, we have worked with those boards um, and gotten their agreement that in terms of contracting, the best way to provide an operator to their facilities and to ensure the best possible services at those facilities is that they are part of this overall portfolio and part, and that they take part in this technological kind of bridging of the divide between all the facilities and that they're really one big group. So while those corporations continue to exist as a, a, a middle management structure, that we now with these new contracts are actually providing the vendor to those facilities um, under these proposed contracts. So the vendor will be under contract with MTA, 
but it was really kind of a joint uh, management structure and we will work in close partnership with those corporations and the vendors that are working under contract with us. Um, and, there, and we now have uh, just two groups proposed in the new contracts. We think that having more than one vendor provides uh, uh, valuable, is valuable to us. We don't think having all our eggs in one basket with one vendor is a, good for the city, but we also, as I alluded to before, don't want a bunch of different contracts that are very challenging to administer. So, but we feel based on the experience of the three group contracts for the last 11 years, that two will still provide us, we still get some kind of internal competition, if you will, or kind of checks and balances about how does one vendor provide service, how does the, versus the other, what does one do better maybe than the other, and how can we, in overseeing both of them, take from each and help them both uh, improve. Um, so that's why one reason, main reason why we continue to propose that there's more than one vendor in the facilities. Um, and you'll see on the screen a breakdown of how the two groups are put together. Uh, a little background on the process that led to the contracts that are before you today. We issued a request for proposals in January of this year and received four responsive proposals from the vendor community. Um, subsequent to that, those were scored and, and we uh, went through a contract negotiation process with the two, two top scoring vendors um, from the evaluation process. We succeeded in that process and have, uh, in the item that's presented to you today, present uh, two separate contracts, each of which has a maximum term of nine years and a maximum uh, expenditure uh, value of $180 million over that nine years. Um, also, because of the size of these contracts, subsequent to the MTA board and Parking Authority Commission approval, we will need to take these agreements to the board of supervisors for concurrent approval just because they exceed that uh, $10 million limit. Um, and, and again, that's what kind of why we're here before you today in September even though the target uh, effective date for these contracts is February 1st of next year because we do need that time to be able to go through the Board of Supervisors Committee and full board process. Um, and just the last bit, a very important context. Um, the parking garages, um, maybe it seems obvious we park cars and we try to provide a service to people, however, because they're not a standalone thing and they're part of this very large uh, agency, the MTA, a prime thing that they're intended to do is provide money to support the agency's operations. Um, so this chart uh, shows you that um, in the last fiscal year, the parking garages netted $38 million. Um, that is all. That is the total number for all of the garages. About 75 to 80 percent of that comes to the MTA. The rest is Rec and Park. A few of the garages that are under parks, uh, that the Rec and Park Department is actually the beneficiary of the net income there. Civic Center Garage, Union Square Garage, Portsmouth Square Garage. Um, but so, and and this slide also illustrates just that coming out of the pandemic, um, we were able to 
very successfully work with our um, contracted operators during the pandemic, act very quickly to address the realities of the pandemic, deal with the labor issues, um, the COVID rule issues. We're able to, and, and beyond just our vendors, we should point out the, the local Teamsters Local 665, that is the union for all of the parking staff that work out there, was a very uh, good uh, partner with us in figuring out how to respond to the pandemic. Uh, and fortunately for us, um, we were able to come out of the pandemic um, with um, an operation that's even more efficient than it was going in. Some of that had to do with finalizing the last couple garages of that uh, parks upgrade, but it was also due to the, the partnership uh, with our vendors and the union uh, in trying to get the staffing to a level that was uh, as minimal as could as it could be and still provide a, a level of service that we could stand behind out there. So that brought us to the point where as of the end of last fiscal year, we were back basically to about 95 plus percent of pre-pandemic net income, uh, while the gross income was only back to about 80% of what it is. So we have a much more efficient uh, parking garage operation today than we did before the pandemic. I think that's thanks to the good work of our vendors and also our in-house staff. Uh, and it just so happens, it, the, the way that evaluation process came about is the two vendors that are proposed to uh, be awarded the new contracts are the same vendors that are operating our garages today. So, um, and that concludes my report. Thank you for that. And I think we're all kind of in, in awe of the net income being roughly almost the same <laughs> between 2019 and today with a lot less um, revenue. And I'd be happy to answer any questions, of course. Great. So I'll start with Director Hemminger. Thank you, Madam Chair. And I want to start with that as well. Um, you know, I agree with you that we don't see enough of you. Um, and especially with results like this, I wish we could see you every couple of weeks. Um, because you deserve some kind of bureaucrat of the year award um, for holding net income steady uh, while gross income, you know, you're down 20 million. Uh, can you give a, a little more granular detail about how you did that? Because it's not, it's not a 12-year period either. It's a, it's a relatively compressed period of time. Well, I, I think we've seen this across our society in many ways. The pandemic presented some opportunities that maybe weren't there in normal times. Um, so I think I mentioned that our $35 million parks upgrade project started in 2016. And an expectation of that project was always that it was going to bring with it some automation that made at least certain kinds of shifts, at minimum, uh, obsolete. Um, so it was, it was a process working with our vendors and the union um, on implementation of that. How do you, on one hand, pursue a goal of efficiency and automation where automation makes sense while also being um, cognizant and trying to deal with the human factor that you are dealing with folks' jobs to the extent that you are going to be uh, phasing down certain types of work. Um, so that was, we addressed that process slowly with a lot of care and discussion. 
Um, there was also some evolution that needed to happen um, with the union. So you went from a, a time, you know, the union is on three-year collective bargaining agreements. You go from a time that a couple CBAs ago, their handbook basically said, we, d we do parking. Like, we do not do, like, janitorial work. We don't do security work. Well, the union in conversations, understanding what automation was going to mean, their view on that evolved. And the last time they negotiated and agreed to uh, a CBA, they added those kind of duties as acceptable for their members to, This is the unions for the, the contractors. The Teamsters. For, right, not for, for, the, for the city For employees. the Teamsters 665 okay. parking staff. Got it. Um, so now that meant that in certain, in a fair amount of facilities, before we did this upgrade, you still had some in old school in-lane cashiering that was really kind of like a toll booth operator. You, know, you had someone sitting in a booth, and because that was the only way you could pay, they were shackled to that booth. They could not do anything else. It didn't matter if only two cars came through their lane an hour. That's what they were doing for eight hours. So bringing in the automation, every, which we brought everywhere, not just to the larger facilities, but to the smaller facilities as well, you now have 95% plus of the transactions happening by machine. So a lot of what happened is you take that, you had a staff that was tethered to that cashiering shift. They're now freed up so they can spend an eight hour shift assisting customers as needed. They can also do some light janitorial work. And then when they, they can do a little, you know, a, observe and report round, walk through a stairwell, check for any issues, maintenance issues, loitering issues, as you will. Um, now, one of the reasons that there was a little bit of a slow implementation of a gradual reduction in staff is there is some conflict there. So because we had Teamsters staff that did those parking cashier positions, now, now we're talking five plus years ago, we had a lot more there was a need for some subcontractor staff that were either doing janitorial work or in certain facilities, security guards were there. Now, we still provide, all of those services are still provided, but there was a bit of kind of sorting out that had to happen because you now you have some parking staff that are spending more of their shift doing some light janitorial work, doing some what they call observe and report security around. So there is some conflict there and there was some staffing that was gradually reduced over time. Um, and so we were slowly doing that, but then what happened with the pandemic is everyone, of course, fairly quickly realized the calamity of the situation and like, we need to let go of some of our entrenched positions and we all just need to realize this is, this is and, we, and just work together and just, and just get through well, it. So we got great support from everyone, including the, the union, and, and, that, and that allowed what would have been probably a more gradual five-year process to happen in six months. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned uh, toll booths because my old agency <laughs> was able to pull off automation of the state bridges basically for the same reason and on the same pace that, that you're describing it here. Um, you know, since we don't see you too much, I, I've got a couple of basic questions, too. Um, First of all, the parking tax, um, who imposes that? 
Is that a board well, of supervisor action? Well, or? as my understanding, I'm not an expert, but my understanding is the parking tax is actually a subset of the transient occupancy tax. So kind of that is the hotel tax people pay is under that. And the parking tax is another category of transient occupancy tax. So it's administered by the tax collector. And the revenue goes to the general fund? Again, my understanding, someone correct me, the tax collector implements and, and that revenue goes to the tax collector. However, then in turn, 80% of those funds come to MTA. So it's like the tax, tax collector administers that program largely on our behalf and then, but then 80% of so those collected parking tax funds So we get 80% of the parking tax. I see Mr. McGuire shaking his head, so that's 80, good. 80% is correct. When's the last time the parking tax rate was raised? Uh, it's been 25% for the whole 12 years I've been here. I'm personally not aware that it was ever a different rate. It could have been. And it would require a board of supervisors action to do so, or could this board do so on its own authority, or how's that work? I, I, Madam City Attorney, Sorry, I presume I'm, I'm, that would require, I presume it would require. We're starved for information actually. up here. This is why I'm asking. Yes, please, go ahead. <laughs> I would have to look into, and, I, and we can certainly look into that and get back to you. Okay. Uh, well, the other question is about parking rates at the garages, and I believe those are set by this board. Correct, Mr. Well, McGuire? Well, they're actually, and, and I, Mr. McGuire, or also we have uh, Mr. Graff here, Director of Parking and Curb, can jump in. Well, if someone knows the at any time right now, my, my understanding right <laughs> is that with the adoption of demand responsive pricing as a permanent program, which I, as I recall, was in 2015. Um, that actually rate setting authority at the garages was delegated by this board to the director and the director designee. So our group, we undergo a quarterly review process of all rates. We consider, you know, demand, you know, utilization is a primary factor in considering whether any rates should go up or down. It's also a little bit more of an art than that. The, the, particulars of competition in the neighborhood come in, the petition, a few other things come in. It's not just a plug and play, you know, you stick in the utilization and a rate spits out. So there's a little nuance place to it. We then, our group then presents up through Director McGuire a recommendation for any changes in rates. Uh, and then Director McGuire consults with Director Tumlin uh, and then provides an approval. My understanding is that when that was, again, demand responsive pricing was approved in 2015, that that authority was delegated in that way. Okay. Well, that's an issue that we talked about at our last meeting, and I might have the same view as I did about the other subject we discussed. Um, so it, it makes sense to me that with SFGO and the demand responsive pricing that that's going to move sort of on its own steam. But it does seem to me, coming out of the pandemic now, um, and with the ship of state here sort of stabilized, that it makes sense to examine the underlying rate, right? There must be a base rate that we do all the tinkering from. And we could raise the base rate up to a certain amount um, and then let, let the tinkering continue. Um, so, Madam Chair, I, I guess what I'm asking for is uh, these are some pretty significant financial issues. 
Uh, and we have some pretty significant uh, stormy weather ahead of us on the budgetary front. And Uncle Sam, I'm afraid, has sent us his last dollar that we're going to see for a while. Um, so I, I do believe, looking under the hood here a little bit more, and evaluating the parking tax, uh, the parking rates. Um, I know we've had discussions, Madam City Attorney, with your office about uh, the residential parking rate and how that applies um, to uh, parts of the city or the whole city even, and what revenue that would generate. Um, so I, I hope we could schedule uh, a briefing on that at some point in the near future uh, that might dovetail with our budget process for next year uh, so that we could, uh, again, take advantage of the strides we've made on the cost side and the efficiency side and see whether there are some things we could do without, knock, without knocking down patronage too much, but things we could do on the revenue side uh, that might help the good of the order. I think that's a worthwhile discussion. I think we would want to look at the elasticity of price and also inflation at the same time, because I would hate to um, have it cut off or news the spider faces to that point. But I think that's a worthwhile thing for us to endeavor into. Um, any other additional comments? No, Director Cudio. <clears throat> thank you so much, Chair Borden. I have three questions. One is about the $10,000 a month management fee. I just wonder, since we've done the necessary work to upgrade these facilities and modernize them and make them more automated, do you worry that paying a blanket $10,000 a month might be overkill? Do we know how much it's actually costing these companies to manage each of these facilities? And in some cases, uh, couldn't it be less than $10,000 a month if they're not, a, not all of them are staffed at the rate they were before? Right. So just to clarify, kind of the management fee is intended to cover their overhead back office um, uh, needs to support everybody that's working out there. We did make, uh, you know, analyze and consider the change in the way the facilities are operated, you know, versus 2011, last time we did this, to now. By way of example, in those three contracts in 2000 that were awarded in 2011, we had three groups, each of which had an $8,000 a month management fee. So that was $24,000 per month, and that was for 16 facilities at the time. And then as we added a few facilities when those nonprofit corporations went away that I mentioned, those management fees actually grew a little bit. So probably today, I'm sorry, I don't have the exact number at hand, but we're probably playing at least 30000 a month in cumulative management fees today. So that's the reason why we propose, partially because it's a little more efficient, the groups are a little larger, and there are more efficiencies there. So we actually accounted for that in proposing the $10,000. So we're actually going to be saving about a third as the day that the new contracts takes, that they start. I'm sorry, just help me understand this, because there's nine facilities in Group A and 12 facilities in Group B. Are there... How, what, how many companies are there that actually manage these facilities that are getting the $10,000 per? There's just two. So again, two. one company will have the Group A contract. So, so LAS Parking is right. proposed to be awarded the Group A that's all of those facilities. And IMCO and, has Group B. And then B. IMCO Parking is Group B. And are Correct. we paying them $10,000 per lot or just 10000 No, No, that's a flat ah, fee for the okay. whole group. So we're paying... La the idea is to pay LAS $10,000 to manage nine facilities. Correct. And $10,000 to manage 12 facilities. 
that sounds a lot more reasonable yeah. than $10,000 per facility. Oh, no, for, that for the entire group. Modernized. Yes. Okay, I'm glad I clarified that. The second thing is, are we planning on acquiring more or larger garages? Or do you think, do you, I think I asked this last time you presented, but are there more garages in the pipeline? I'm just tr I'm kind of jumping off of Director Heminger's um, comments. We don't have a lot of great means of bringing in new revenue quickly, and I think this is one of those ways. So is there other plans, maybe Tom or Not Jonathan? to my knowledge, but they're welcome to address this question. Good afternoon, directors. Tom McGuire, Streets Director, Unmasked. Uh, so we, we don't have any money in our capital program or any plans to build new garages. That's definitely not you know consistent with the Transit First policy. Um, we continue to work with other city property owners like the Port and Rec Park, who often ask us to come in and manage their garages. Um, usually, we just we, you know we pass the revenue uh, through to those to those owners. Um, so there's a you know that that's about the only way in which we would really add to our portfolio. Oh yeah, I didn't mean to construct them, but to buy them. Yeah. Have we talked at all? Are we, are we in? This might be opening a Pandora's box, but the the eight hundred car lot in uh, Golden Gate Park is that something that we're thinking about taking over and getting revenue from? Uh, you know, that's something that is before the voters this fall, so I don't want to you know jump the gun on that. But uh, I would say that we have had great relationships with Rec Park, and I think we've done a really good job of managing Rec Park's facilities in places like the Civic Center and Union Square with you know, just professionalism and, and, and cleanliness and everything like that. And you know, so we would we keep partnering with them. If they ever if they ever owned a garage, we would be willing to work with them. And we get some of that revenue. Uh, we, we get management costs out of it, yes. Great, thank you. Uh, and then the next question is about um, the kind of the topic of conversation around the city, which is this seemingly semi-permanent move to remote work for many of our downtown workers. And a lot of our largest garages, if I'm not mistaken, are downtown. Uh, and while I'm also happy and surprised to see that revenue was basically at 2020 levels in 2022, I'm nervous about what it means for this revenue longer term if these lots are not being filled with office workers coming to the city. So I don't know that this is something to necessarily bake into the contract since the management fee is just for two, but uh, I don't know if you have thoughts about that or if the fee structure that we've put into place has any kind of resilience that might take into account um, what, what might a 30 to 40% drop in, in parking usage, or if we have any data on whether how many of these vehicles are visitors versus uh, local residents. We, we absolutely do. So just to clarify, the MTA staff, so our, my work unit, we have control over the rates in the garages. Our vendors operate these facilities, but at our direction. We approve their staffing levels. We approve their maintenance budgets, we approve the rates. The vendors do not set any rates. They make, can make recommendations to us. Of course, we want any recommendations that they have based on their day-to-day -day experience, but approval of all rates is with us. In terms of do we know, what do we know about what's going on out there? One thing that the pandemic encouraged us to do that we stood up you know, probably a month into the pandemic and have continued ever since is I know every morning by 10 a.m. exactly what the utilization was at all the garages yesterday. So we have an online Google sheet that everybody populates, and so we know, and, that, and we compare that year over year, and we are always comparing the current year to 2019. So I can tell you, as of yesterday, you know, we are pretty consistently in the summer here, 
we're to a point where transient parking, so daily parkers, not monthly parkers, um, we're at about 80-ish percent of utilization pre-pandemic, so that's number of tickets. So if there were a million tickets, there are 800,000. However, in terms of revenue, we're more like 92, 93%. So fewer people are coming, but they're staying longer. So your average ticket price is a little up and whatever. And you know we don't have super granular data, but our experience tells us that you have some office workers who used to be monthly parkers, well, they were you know shelling out that 300 bucks or whatever. So now I'm only going in two days a week, so instead of buying that monthly pass, I'm just gonna be a daily parker, and I'm just gonna come. And how does that net out on revenue for us? So to the extent that people move from monthlies to daily, I think that's actually better for us. You huh. know, we make transient Perhaps parking Perhaps I should keep better. my mouth shut then. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, one, but here's an example, let me just give an example of we're all, I haven't heard any like off the wall ideas come out to us or anything yet, but that's something that we want to understand as, as it feels like the situation of office workers gets more stable and predictable, whereas it's, now it's kind of mobile and all over the place. We will absolutely be seriously considering designing new programs that work for them. Hmm. You know, well, um, with the permission of the chair, I would love. I think it would be necessary for us to get some kind of report, maybe a year or a year and a half from now, just to see how changing work habits are affecting parking utilization. We all know, of course, that um, we are a transit-first city, but also our department runs these parking garages, and we use the revenue to run our transit system. So I think it is uh, very important for us as a board to understand how this might be affecting our garage usage. So I would benefit from learning what the trends are in a year from now, uh, if that's okay with you. Thank Absolutely. you, that's all I've got. Thank you. Director Egan. Okay, thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, I, I, I'm hearing from my colleagues some, some more interest in diving deeper into parking issues, so I, I, I'll just second that request, uh, both to go into the tax rates, sources of revenue, and also kind of a check-in in about a year. That sounds great. Um, Mr. Merlin, at the top of the staff report, as, as is customary, um, there's a little bit of a sort of a, a tie-in with the MTA's larger strategic plan of each item. Mm -hmm. And the two items mentioned here at the top of the staff report are positioning MTA for financial success, and that also um, that our parking policies for, for areas well served by transit, which as Director Kirschbaum has reminded us, is the whole city. Uh, shall be designed to encourage travel by public transit and alternative modes of transportation. So I just wondered at a high level, could you just talk a little bit about those two strategic plan goals and maybe particularly the second is how are our parking policies encouraging use of public transit and alternative modes of sure. travel? Sure, and so addressing the first one's pretty straightforward. I guess you, you could see by our by depiction of the financial success, you know, we are supporting, we're getting ever more efficient as we go. Yeah. So to the extent that we have to, have expenditures to support this revenue that's coming in, we continually work to have those expenses be as controlled as possible so that we can provide as much um, net income as possible to support Muni and other SFMTA programs. In terms of serving areas uh, well served by transit, I, to, in my mind, um, this means in, as I mentioned when we go through that quarterly rate review process, there's kind of a very uh, hard data part of that, like what's the utilization mm -hmm. or monthlies, what's our wait list, what's the, the, what's the 
uh, what are the, what's the rate structure of competing facilities in the area, dun, dun, dun. But in terms of um, what pricing, how, how easy it is for people to get to a certain area is something that comes in as kind of the art part of it rather than the science part of it, right? So, for example, I've been working in basically the same role for 12 years, right? I mean, there's periodic pressure, depending on what's going on in the broader economy, for lower rates in our, you know, retail centers, whether it's Union Square or whatever. On one hand, that's totally understandable, but in areas that are, that are well served by transit, I think that comes into the consideration of how you, you know, analyze and respond to such requests, you know, and you need to understand, you know, well, what percentage of people, and this is where we reach out to other colleagues in the agency and where it's very valuable to be, rather than being a standalone parking authority, but to be part of this larger MTA. We reach out to our colleagues in the planning group in the streets division, for example, you know, what's the data about transit? You know, I've had this address, looked into this question uh, years ago now, but, you know, where we started asking for and looking at what's the BART exits, number of BART exits at Powell and, and Montgomery stations? What's the trend of that versus how many people come and park in the garages in the Union Square area? Because that's a, just a fascinating question to me. Like, of the customers that are coming to these businesses, how many of them are driving versus how many of them are using transit? Um, so we, and whenever we get requests about like that about rates, we always have to consider is when we make money and, and when we ever get someone suggesting that, well, you're just trying to make money. Well, you know what we do with that money is we support transit. We're supporting, yes, we might be charging certain customers are paying and maybe someone could argue that they think they're paying a little too much. Well, that money is going to support the transit system that brings other customers who maybe either don't have a car or don't think, you know, driving is the way they want to go there. So it's a little bit of a, a little bit of a balancing act there. Um, I don't know. You tell me if you. <laughs> okay. Maybe we could take that kind of conversation off, offline. Yeah. Um, the other question I had was related to um, the utilization rates, which you spoke to. So that concludes my questions. Thank you. Thank Chair you. Board. And Director Hinsey has a question as well. She's online. Yeah, and thank you, Mr. Mullen. This is just a question that, um, because we don't see very often, I think your contracts, there, there are no comments that I have on the contracts. I, I congratulate your team on um, sort of slimming down while maintaining an equal sort of level of service. So that's great. The one, the one area I sort of wanted to, to touch on is um, garage security. And you and I have talked about this before, about some of the reports in the media, but, um, and you and I have talked about it before, but they are out there. So I just wanted to see if you can um, sort of dive into what the contractor um, what is in their security plans and how we we um, make sure our uh, garages are secure. Sure. Um, well, just to be frank, it, it is fair that as we have um, moved forward and made our operations more efficient, that has meant fewer people 
are at some of our garages. Well, we still have very good sight on our garages with all of the HD cameras that feed back and that we have access to. Um, it, it's, does embolden certain people who are maybe looking for an easy, uh, an easy uh, way to smash a window and steal a purse or whatever. They see fewer people. They see as a little more of a target. So that is an ongoing challenge. Um, so, in terms of working with our vendors, however, again, just to repeat that our vendors are working at our direction and in partnership with us in terms of how they implement all policies that are working to address security and any other policy issues in the garages. So in terms of what type of staffing they're using, what, the, what their approved budget is for staffing for these type of activities, we are, you know, um, we take the lead in the primary, primary, in most instances, we take the lead in working with the police department, in certain cases with rec park rangers on rec park facilities for um, uh, setting up protocols for escalating response to certain issues when we see it, for example, uh, VBIs. Um, I would like to say that while these, you know, certain, you know, VBIs and certain other, you know, nuisance behaviors um, uh, do happen, I think a certain amount of that is inevitable in these very large public facilities that, again, they're public. You know, you, it's not like someone's walking in the door. You can, what are you doing here? You know, the default yeah. is a, a person has the right to be there. They could just be walking through as taking a shortcut to the other side versus a private facility who could just kind of try to keep people from even walking in. So it is a challenge. Yeah. Um, but we have, we continually are evolving our efforts, both for the portfolio at large and at specific facilities to address the trends because it changes. As soon as you, you have a facility that is experiencing a spike in kind of security-related instances and you make a push in that facility, it largely, you know, it's like a tube of toothpaste or whatever. It pushes the issue to a facility nearby. Um, so it's a little, it's a challenge that doesn't go away. Uh, I would like to point, you know, we're data nerds, we like to say in the parking group. You know, it, when we started tracking, we first started like which weekly tracking of VBIs in early 2017 when there was a very big push by all stakeholders that work on this issue in the city. And uh, while we certainly do still have vehicle break-ins happening every month, in, in, our, in our garages, it's under half of the level of when we first, first started tracking those instances in 2017. So we feel like we have uh, a good you know, partnership and plan with both our vendors and the various you know, sworn officers who assist us. But it is just a very challenging issue and not something you can bring to zero. Um, but it is at top of mind all the time, yeah. and we're always looking for suggestions from this board and 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 all our various stakeholders um, for um, strategies for consideration on how to make that experience better for our customers. Thank you, Jerry. Just wanted to give you the opportunity to speak to it, but it, it sounds like you're you're doing you're doing what you can given the circumstances of it being a public garage. Um, Thank you, Director Henze. 
I'm ready to motion to well, approve. we need to have public, oh, public comment. Public comment. Public comment. <laughs> I feel like we've commented so much. The pu what would the public even have to say? Oh, well, I think we have members of the the teams being selected who'd like to maybe perhaps oh. speak. So with that, we will open it up to public comments. So anyone who'd like to comment, thank you very much. On items 10A and B, or who are in the room, are welcome to the podium. And if you'd like to speak online. Please get in the queue by pressing star three. Our first speaker. I have Welcome. one speaker card, Fred Bekele. Uh Good afternoon, Madam Chair and uh, members of the board and Director Tomlin. Uh, my name is Fred Bekele. I'm the founder of Convenient Parking uh, LLC. Convenient Parking is a certified local business enterprise that has been serving the city for the past, since 1994. And uh, I'm a joint JV partner with Imperial Parking. And because of this joint venture, we're able to, small businesses, we're able to uh, participate in this bid and qualify. And uh, I, I just appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to comment on this support of the board's approval of the, this contract item 10A and 10B on the agenda before you. Convenient parking is small business local, but just like Mine appreciate the dedication of this board, the staff, contract monitoring division, for all your effort in ensuring that small local businesses get their fair share of the government contracts. Uh, this may be just another uh, agenda for the board, but for the dedication of this board to encourage being inclusive and, and small businesses participate in this is huge for us because because of your uh, pushing this and us being able to get uh, the part of this effort, it, it's, it means a lot to us. So I just want you to be cognizant of your achievements. So uh, thank you very much is what I, I want to say. Thank you. Thank you for being here, for speaking. Are there any other speakers in the room? Mr. Desi, no? Anyone else? If not, we'll move to our online callers. First speaker, please. We have one caller in the queue. Uh, once again, David Pilpel. So this issue was last uh, here at the MTA board on October 5th of 2021 to extend the existing contracts. The staff report refers to that date, but in 2020 in uh, at least one instance. Um, I was not aware that MTA managed the Recreation Park Department Keysar lot. I'm wondering if that's new and it's not included in the map that was part of the uh, presentation. Um, and by the way, I would have included that map not just in the presentation but also in the staff report. Um, and perhaps in the future it could be included and um, better distinguish the MTA uh, facilities from the rec park um, facilities. Um, I continue to think that this management and operations function should not be contracted out. I would bring it uh, in-house. I've said that before. I'd be interested in Mark Gleason and the Teamsters' perspective on that issue. Uh, perhaps he's uh, listening and will comment. If, I, I always appreciate hearing Mark Gleason. Um, I guess I had a bit of a flashback earlier to when Director Heminger served on the Parking and Traffic Commission, and that was um, a few years ago. And I, I think he and I were both a bit, a bit younger. Um, finally, the resolution, both resolutions <laughs> resolved uh, clauses in five instances refer to the SMFTA. 
you know, I, I've said this before. I, I'm sorry. Please, please proofread all these materials before they go public. It is really embarrassing uh, to have typos like that. And on page 144 in the second contract, it refers to Mr. Malone's office as being on South Van Ness Boulevard, and I believe it's South Van Ness Avenue. Anyway, please, please proofread this stuff. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Mr. Pilpel. Are there any additional commenters on the line? No additional callers. Great. So with that, we'll close public comment. I want to just say I'm happy to support this measure, and I'm happy that we could also, one of the big things I think is really important is our contracts are do support and represent our community, and I love that this contract does that, and we were able to make that happen. I know there were very tough times during the pandemic where things have been cut back, and I do want to make sure that our I guess we call them LBEs, are, are adequately sustained and are an important part of our contracts. I look forward to the day when, when the LBEs are the lead of all of our contracts as, as, as opposed to being in reverse. So I'm um, very excited about that. I know you want to make a motion, Director Ecudio? Chair Borden, if I may. Sure. May we um, incorporate that proposed amendment to the resolution to correct any typos of the SFMTA? Yes, that's an excellent idea. Thank you. So I'd like to um, propose that we pass the motion as amended. Please. Can you please call the question? On the motion, uh, Director Kahina. Aye. Kahina, aye. Director Heminger. Aye. Heminger, aye. Director Hinzi. Aye. Hinzi, aye. Director Yukutiel. Aye. Yukutiel, aye. Director Eakin. Aye. Eakin, aye. Chair Borden. Aye. Borden, aye. Thank you. The item is amended and approved. Perfect. Moving on to our final item, right? It's our final item. <laughs> and uh, I do want to clarify that was for items 10A and 10B together. Yes. Thank you. Places you on item number 11, approving contract number SFMTA 202231 to provide workers' compensation claims, administration services to Intercare Holdings Insurance Services for a contract amount not to exceed $33,771,962 for a three-year base term and two options of three years each to extend the term for a total term of nine years, said options to be exercised by the Director of Transportation. Good afternoon, Chair Borden and Directors. I'm Kimberly Ackerman, Chief People Officer here at MTA. And I'm happy to be presenting a contract. Yeah, we can't hear you. <laughs> he was a little taller. Is that better? Yes. I'm happy to be here to talk a little bit about a contract that we're asking you to approve. It's a workers' compensation contract with Intercare Holdings to provide workers' compensation claims administration uh, for MTA. Workers' compensation is a program mandated by the governor um, uh, of California that requires every employer in California to provide disability benefits to employees who are injured on the job. Workers' compensation benefits include temporary disability support payments for those employees who are temporarily disabled, medical care while they're out of work, permanent disability payments to compensate for permanent disability. The SFMTA is a self-insured uh, employer for purposes of workers' compensation claims. Uh, we assumed responsibility for managing workers' compensation claims on July 1 of 2000. Uh, the SFMTA and Department of uh, HR, Human Resources, um, have had joint contracts with Intercare Holdings since November 1, 2012. 
So this year we decided that we would combine forces in terms of the RFP, but we would have our own separate contract. So DHR will have their workers' compensation contract, we will have ours. Uh, the reason why that's advantageous uh, for us is it gives us greater flexibility to make changes within the contract that we need, to do add-ons, and also to effectively manage uh, our claims, which hopefully will result in reduced cost. The uh, TPA, InterCare, um, their scope of services includes claims intake and investigation, management of temporary and permanent disability payments, management of medical claims, medical services reviews, um, and working with our staff in terms of medical, medical bill review services. They coordinate payments to medical service providers and evaluate physicians. They provide medical and disability claims management to facilitate employees' return to work. Uh, manage claims cost reduction programs, which we partner with them on. Management of subrogation and third-party claims settlement. Litigation support to the city attorney. OSHA database management and Medicare inquiry incident data reporting. Uh, we did go through a competitive process. We reached out to 47 different uh, companies, claims management, third-party administrators, um, letting them know that the RFP would be coming out. Uh, there are three who submitted uh, actual proposals. Two were evaluated. Intercare was the number one company with the highest score. So we are asking for uh, your approval for us to award the contract. Um, it is uh, 3324 the first year. It's a three-year contract. There are two three-year um, uh, 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 extension options. For, so the total contract is 33771 over nine years. What questions do you have for me? Do we have any questions, Vectors? Seeing now, why don't we open? Oh, Dr. Egan, go ahead. Public comment. That's great. Public comment? Yes, we'll do okay, public great. comment. I do not have any speaker cards. I do see one caller in the queue. Yes, please, our speaker. Mr. Pilpel? <laughs> Hello? Please unmute the line, moderator. Great. Can you hear me now? Yes, we can. It, it is, in fact, Mr. Filpel. Okay. Um, no typos on this, so great work. Once again, I question whether this function should be contracted out. I would bring it in-house. I believe the staff report referred to 20 staff uh, that the contractor would be providing to support the MTA uh, workers' comp function, third-party administrator uh, function. Um, I believe there are other agencies that do this work in-house and don't contract with a third-party administrator. Um, I just, once again, think that staff reports shouldn't, uh, in reviewing alternatives, say, you know, should we contract this out in this way? Should we extend the existing contract? Uh, or should we let it lapse or something? There, consideration should always be given to whether or not to bring the function in-house. And if there's a good reason to do so, we should. And if there isn't a good reason to do so, then we should continue to contract it out. But I, I didn't see any discussion of that possibility, and that's what um, I was looking for here. 
Um, if you choose to keep contracting it out, then I think this is fine. Let it go. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Are there any additional callers on the line? No additional callers in the queue. Seeing them, we'll, we'll uh, Director Eakin, you had a question. Okay, well, Mr. Pilpel's your lucky day because that was my question as well, <laughs> is, uh, is why, why contract this out rather than do the yeah. services in-house? Yeah, um, you know, it, it takes a huge staff, I think he mentioned 20, um, to actually administer it in-house. We have a small team of six on our workers' comp team, mm -hmm. basically who helps uh, with the management of the workers' comp and is a liaison with the TPA. Those, that group of employees, they work really as, as a liaison between the employee and the divisions, bringing them back to work, go through their drug testing, making sure in terms of assisting them with doctors, et cetera. Um, it would take a significant team to fully do everything in-house. We do not have that expertise. I mean, you have to think all of the different things that I, that I mentioned about the, the, under the scope of services, uh, medical review, Right? Each one of the claims have to be evaluated. You have to have a medical team who reviews them. Uh, you definitely, we don't have that in-house expertise, and that's going to be costly to get. Um, we have 1,600 open claims right now. We get, we get 500 claims a year. So that would take a huge staff to, to monitor. Um, also, I think it's beneficial to have an outside TPA who can actually do the evaluation and make the final determination. It's not depend on our staff to do that. We have involvement. There's definitely a dialogue, but it's ultimately up to the, the TPA. Great. Thank you for that. And then my last question is just kind of picking up on um, Chair Borden's comment on the last item. These are fairly significant sums. How are we thinking about local businesses um, eligible to compete for these dollars? You know what? I, I do not, was not on the panel. But I'm going to um, ask Ify Omakaro. He is one of my HR managers. He actually heads up the workers' comp team. So I know you were involved in the panel and maybe can speak to that, Ify. Yes. Uh, good afternoon, board members. My name is Ify Omakaro, Leave Services and Accommodations Manager. So I was not on the panel because I was uh, in working with the contract, so it would be a, kind of a contradiction. But we did look at 47, like Kim mentioned. We reached out to 47 uh, companies, and we got responses back from three companies, mainly because we're a large company. We have a lot of claims. And so it's kind of difficult for companies to have the bandwidth to deal with the amount of claims we present. So um, we did reach out to as many companies as we knew, have worked with in the past, and have submitted um, requests in the past. Everyone we've known, um, we reached out to them. So we took the time to figure that part out, but we can't control who responds back to us. So. Thank you. And I think, too, there are some um, community-based organizations that do partner with us kind of in an indirect way with workers' comp. Our return to work, drug providers, is uh, a local uh, community-based organization. We also have EAP. Um, so we do have some other ways that we can bring that, that local community uh, business um, indirectly to the contract. I do have a question related to that, though. I mean, do we, in our contracts like that, do we have that? We still have the LBE yes. provisions and requirements. And how are they met typically for those kinds of contracts? Because there's usually not a huge, like a main and a sub and all that in some of these. What, what was all the questions? I mean, I a, lot, a lot of these contracts, you don't have as many players as you do, like in a big, large like, construction right. contract, where you have all these subs. So how does that play out in something like this typically? 
That might be a legal question for counsel more so than, than, <laughs> than me in terms of the, the contracts and RFP piece. Thanks. My understanding is that um, LBE participation in this area is very low because there are few opportunities due to some of the licensing requirements related to dealing with these kinds of documents and these um, and managing these claims and issues. Um, and also the fact that electronic medical records has eliminated a lot of opportunities. So the electrification of a lot of mm -hmm. medical records um, and documentation has eliminated some of the opportunities for LBE participants. Okay. All right, something to think about. <laughs> Any other questions, Director Hemminger? Did you have a question? No. I'll move the item. Perfect. Is there a second? Seconded. Can you please call the question? On the motion to approve, Director Kahina. Aye. Kahina, aye. Director Hemminger. Aye. Hemminger, aye. Director Hinzi. Aye. Hinzi, <coughs> aye. Director Yukutiel. Aye. Yukutiel, aye. Director Eakin. Aye. Eakin, aye. Chair Borden. Aye. Borden, aye. Thank you. The item is approved and concludes the business before you today. Yes, we are now adjourned. Our next meetings are on October 4th and our special meeting on the 14th. Woohoo!